bipolar disease in youth, 10,833% since 1990. And the list goes on, you know, from celiac, chronic fatigue, depression, diabetes. All of these are increasing at crazy rates. And it is from the combination of things. We're trying to pinpoint and say it's because of EMFs. It's because of childbirth. It's because of our food. It's because of our lack of movement. But it's not because of one of these. It is all of these things because we are all in this collective together and it all has effects on our body, on our spirits, on our capacity to think, our ability to birth our children, and for our health, you know? Welcome to Living 4D with Paul Check. Today's guest is primal birth expert, Kimberly Nelly. Kim was an experienced personal trainer with a successful business when over a decade ago and expecting her first child, she realized she knew nothing about pregnancy, childbirth, or motherhood. Since then, she has studied at a midwifery school, attended over 50 births at a birth center, and fallen in love with the natural spontaneous act of birth, as well as becoming a mother to four children and three stepchildren. Kim has created several courses on pregnancy and childbirth and runs specialized retreats in Hawaii, where she lives. Keep listening to the end of the podcast for special offers on Kim's online courses and her retreats. So, Kim Nelly, welcome to Living 4D with Paul Check. I'm super excited to share you with the world. Thanks for joining me today, Kim. Thank you so much, Paul. I'm really excited to be here. You know, uh, there's a, a brief introduction to you uh, that they've already heard. And I just wanted to share a little bit about my experience with you so people have some sense of what brought me to wanting to have you on the show. It's been a long time since you and I were interacting in my courses. Uh, what? When did you start taking courses with me? It's been at least 10 years. Because, yeah. Yeah. My son is almost 11 now. Yeah. I, I, rem I remember you and James uh, coming to my workshops at East Coast Alliance in Miami and, um, of course, taking courses. And I also uh, consulted you and James in your uh, raising of your first child and relationship. And so I developed, you know, a, a deeper relationship with you both through that. But, uh, you know, you've done HLC1, HLC2, HLC3. Uh, have you done any of the Czech practitioner programs? Uh, no, I just did those uh, videotapes when you used to have the videotapes, the VHSs. <laughs> okay, yeah. Okay, I good. So, did a lot of those. Yeah, so you've got a pretty good knowledge of exercise and you're an HLC3, so I know you have a lot of knowledge of holistic lifestyle coaching and all those factors. And... So you've been on quite a journey and, um, you know, I talked about you in my interview with Nicole Devaney and shared the story about your crisis in the hospital and how we did some healing work together. And 
So some of the listeners will already have heard Kim Nelly's name before, and um, I don't think I mentioned your name specifically, but I said a client of mine, but um, they will now know that you are the woman. So they know you have a lot of experience with challenges in life for sure. And in the years that we've worked together, you've had how many children now? I have birthed four children. Four children. So you've made a full cycle. Four is the number of completion. Are you going to have more? I'm feeling pretty complete with children right now. (laughs) (laughs) I bet you are. (laughs) Yes, I love them all dearly. They're all magical. Uh, I think I'm ready to pause and uh, continue raising them. Yeah. So can you just share, aside from the introduction that Penny has shared, can you just give us a little bit of a sense of connection to Kim Nelly and what led her to putting so much time, energy, and work into developing the conscious birthing program that you now offer the world and have been for quite a while, actually. But what ultimately were the experiences that led you to looking deeper and then wanting to share so that people can get a sense of kind of your history and and who they're listening to? Yeah, I would love to, Paul. Um, it was... Gosh, I'm going to try to keep it concise because a lot has happened in these last over 10 years. Yeah. But it really started when I got pregnant with my first and I was already a Czech practitioner. I was working at the Four Seasons as an advantage trainer. I was working with pregnant women with the knowledge that I knew. And then I realized I really know nothing. I was um, searching, you know, online, trying to find all of the answers or any advice about pregnancy, about childbirth. And I really was left kind of just without too much guidance at that time. So I actually enrolled into midwifery school when I was four months pregnant with my son because I was actually scared of childbirth. And I just thought that I would go to the doctor and give birth and that's just what we did. That's what my parents did. That's the, what the culture was. And thank goodness for James at the time, he was very adamant that I was going to have an out-of-hospital birth and I was going to have a natural birth. So that really just took me on a journey. And midwifery school, gosh, I just dove right in. My school was actually at a birth center. And I was able to witness and participate in so many births before I gave birth. And it shifted my entire thought of what childbirth was. I knew I was able to live it. Like this is a natural occurrence that can happen. And I caught babies after baby after baby. So by the time I was ready to give birth, I was actually really excited. I couldn't wait to see and feel what my journey was going to be. So um, that after experiencing that, And then also while I was in midwifery school, we started doing exercise with the pregnant moms that were coming in and just seeing how their labors went, how their births went. And we just saw a positive all around. The women felt better about themselves. They were able to be calmer during their birth. Um, They just, they felt prepared. So we knew that we were onto something and we couldn't really find anything else out there. So we designed our own course and it was called Get Fit for Birth. And we actually geared it towards personal trainers and healthcare providers because we realized that the education needed to be there. So 
that's how we founded Fit for Birth. And that was kind of like my physical journey. And then when I was pregnant with my second daughter or my second child, my daughter, it really became a spiritual journey. I let go, not that I let go, but the physical part I felt was already kind of ingrained in me. And um, I really started doing work on myself. I did dream circles. I learned how to connect with my unborn baby. Um, I let her guide the way. And it was a totally like magnificent journey that led me to Hawaii to come be with the wild dolphins. I spent two months swimming with the wild dolphins. I went into labor with the wild dolphins. And I gave birth at home in um, a nice bath of warm water. And I experienced something called the fetal, uh, it's called like the fetal ejection, where mm. my daughter actually birthed herself. Like well, all beautiful. of a sudden, yeah, she just was emerging out of, you know, the birth canal. And I had never known what this was or even that this could exist. And all of a sudden, she was just in my arms. And I was just like, wow, like, this is birth. Um, you know, my first experience was great, but it was in a birth center. And it was still kind of mechan- like uh, mechanical. There was, you still had all these little checkpoints throughout the labor process. But this was a totally intuitive process where I was left um, as alone as I wanted to be. And yeah, when she just emerged like that, it was just this unbelievable bliss. And I filmed that process because I really at that time wanted to share with the world that birth can be so different than what we know it. And especially as the general public knows it. And so we made this documentary called Naya Journey into Life, and it shows swimming with the dolphins, it shows the birth, it shows the connection to nature and the little ceremonies that we did. And we just, I just posted on YouTube, but it was just really to share. And within like a month, we had over 100,000 views and it went up, it has over 600,000 views now, which is beautiful. And I had no idea the impact it would have on those who are watching. And I started receiving emails and phone calls and Skype sessions of women who wanted to come and experience this. And at this time, I had moved back to Miami and I wasn't able to fulfill that obligation. I wasn't able to fulfill that for them. But I really got inspired to start doing retreats for women and having holding retreats in Hawaii to allow them to have that experience of what it feels like to let go of all the things that you think you need to be doing and how to focus on yourself and your baby and what you truly want in life. And sometimes we need to step out of our everyday life and enter another kind of realm in order to think clearly and to see clearly and just to be present without all of the extra distractions around. Amen. So, yeah, so that was uh, my intention there. And at that time, though, when I moved back to Miami, my daughter was now a year and a half, and I'm preparing for these first retreat that I was going to hold in Hawaii. And I was having some troubles in my relationship, and I started to get really sick. And it was an autoimmune neurological disorder, but at the time, there was no idea of what it was. My literally, literally, my body just started shutting down. And here I was thinking I was doing all the right things. I was doing my yoga. I was homeschooling my kids. I had my business, um, you know, paying the mortgage, having my car, 
um, I was so stressed out. I was eating all the right foods. I was, you know, doing all the things that I thought I was supposed to be doing to be living this healthy, natural lifestyle. But inside I was dying. Mm. And, um, you know, my, my external environment was not matching my internal environment. And I was becoming toxic and my body literally shut down. And that's when I ended up in the hospital when I had my um, session with you, where I basically was paralyzed. And I mean, literally to the point I had urinary incontinence, bowel incontinence, my larynx was paralyzed, I couldn't talk. Um, So I had a lot of time to just reflect on life. My daughter had to stop breastfeeding. I went from Miami to California. My mom took care of the kids. Uh, It was it really a shutdown. And I really said, um, I surrender, you know, I surrender to death. And I wasn't dying. And I remember when we had our conversation and you had mentioned about, um, I had implants at the time about silicone poisoning and how it really resonated with me. This is definitely part of the issue. I knew it wasn't all of it. I knew it was the stressors in my life, um, but the silicone poisoning was definitely part of it. And the doctors wouldn't even uh, look at me. They wouldn't um, take anything to do with it. They just want nothing. It was had nothing to do with it. So there I was. And I remember the last words that you said to me, Paul, were probably the most inspiring for me. And you were like, you're not going to die. You're a spiritual warrior. Now go get this done. You know? And I was like, okay, I'm not going to die. <laughs> I'm a spiritual warrior. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I, 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 I really, um, you know, when I first, when you first reached out to me, um, I didn't really have a sense of how deeply in trouble you were, but I had a very strong message from my soul that I needed to do some special distance healing using light frequencies on you. Um, and I could see that you were, you know, you were in uh, trouble. You were in intensive care and it was uh, serious. And I remember you, you were so tired. You could barely hold on to your phone and, and talk to me, but you know, I, I just had a very, very deep sense that you're here to do a lot of important work and that this is just part of your learning process. And I'm sure you're at the point now where you've come to realize that all the challenges that we work through often bring us into situations where we gather the wisdom that we need in order to help the rest of ourselves heal. In other words, when we once we really authentically heal something with our, within ourselves, we can spot it intuitively and directly in almost anyone that's carrying it because we know the vibe, we know the look, we know, we know that sort of entanglement intimately. And you've spent a, a tremendous amount of your time, energy, and effort developing um, healthy, well-grounded, intelligent ways. And I'd forgotten that you went to school to be a midwife, which I think is incredible because in my experience, midwives are often much more competent than many of the doctors and OBGYNs and nurses that get involved in the birthing process. And Angie interviewed quite a number of midwives to land our current midwife that she really loves. And I appreciate deeply too, Nicole Morales. And Nicole has a whole team and they're all just amazing, beautiful people. And and so I think having that experience as a midwife adds a whole other dimension of credibility to what you're doing. So I'm 
grateful for that. Um, I want to sort of kick the interview off by just sharing that this is a very, very important interview for anybody in the healthcare profession, allied healthcare profession, exercise profession, anybody that interacts with women or couples that are uh, thinking of having a child, anybody that's pregnant, and anybody that's working with expecting or, or uh, people contemplating having children who do have children, who are planning on future children or on their first children. Because the wisdom that Kim is going to share in here, you might have to go through a lot of pain, a lot of trials and a lot of ups and downs and even more frightening experiences than that to learn and gain the wisdom that Kim's going to share with here. So Kim, with that introduction, which I thought was beautiful, thank you. Um, let's get into the magic, mystery, and duty of being pregnant with new life. And what I'd like to do today in our dialogue is talk about it in the stages that it naturally unfolds. So the way I've outlined the interview is preparation. How do we prepare pregnancy? What could we be aware of in that state? Birthing, the actual birthing process. And then we'll close with your tips and experience of parenting. So to begin with, Kim, what does your conscious birthing program and coaching offer for expecting mothers or current mothers that want support for effective child development through optimal parenting? And I say or current mothers because one of the things I've noticed is that uh, Angie and I went to birthing class together. We went to hypnobirthing. We, uh, I went to a Lamaze training with my first wife for my first son. One of the things that's popped up over and over again in these conversations with women is that every birth has been different for them. Um, some of them had an easy first birth and a tough second. Some had a tough first and an easy second. It seems like it's a bit like a shamanic journey <laughs> and that no woman can ever go in with complete assurance that she knows what the outcome is going to be. So it seems like it's very important for women that already have children to continue to keep their mind open to possibilities. And if you're listening to this podcast, it could be your soul guiding you to just exactly the midwife, the spiritual counselor, and the expert that you may need for birthing or parenting. So if you can just share a little more of what your conscious birthing program and coaching offer for and who it's directed towards, I would love to start off with that. Yeah, so I offer either a virtual course or uh, you can come for a retreat or you can come and give birth. And all of them really focus on empowering a mom and her husband to birth the way that they want to birth. And it's a very big picture and we need to focus on like where the fear has come from and why women are drawn to the hospital and feel that it's the safest place to give birth. And I like to focus a lot on women kind of going back in their past because a lot of women don't even think about it. It's just our culture has created birth is in the hospital. And women just take that and continue with it. 
So just at first, just having women open themselves up, ask their parents about the way that they were birthed and how their grandparents birthed and whatnot, just to open that box up. And then for women to start feeling into what it would feel like for them to want to give birth naturally. And it's just really about empowering women to trust in themselves. And we've lost a lot of that trust, especially in the birth world. And we are constantly looking everything up on Google and we're asking our doctors and we're asking our midwives and we're asking our partners and we're asking everyone else except for ourselves and asking the baby that is to come or that is already in the womb, what am I going to do? How am I going to do this? And I believe when a lot of women take away the fears or go inside to themselves, there is this feeling that they want to give birth naturally. This is instinctual. Our bodies were made to give birth and we want to do this. Yet cultural conditioning and the whole women's rights movements of wanting to be seen as equal and be able to, um, you know, get paid. And we've created kind of this unbalanced uh, lifestyle. And so it's just bringing ourselves back into balance. And then how do we create the support around the birth? So in the online program, it basically just goes through the kind of the history of childbirth, how women can get in touch with herself, how she can help reduce fears and anxieties around birth, how she can have her family um, either support her or how to kind of let them know that this is their opportunity um, for her to be able to say, okay, if, if you're not going to support me, I'm going to have to, you know, take this on by myself, but not let other people influence my birth, how she can feel safe, how the partner can feel safe, and how for her to move from fear to excitement. For when she is ready to give birth, she's excited. And it goes through exercise, it goes through nutrition, it goes through mental emotional thoughts, it goes through prenatal psychology, how you can connect with your unborn baby. Um, there's many aspects to this program and I feel it's a really a fulfilled program. And, um, and yeah, a lot of women who take that program by the time it's to give birth, they're excited to give birth and for the retreats and for women who come here to give birth is women who really kind of want to step outside of their everyday world. Sometimes people don't feel like they have enough time to fit into their lives, to practice, to prepare for childbirth. I mean, we have so many different things going on in our in our world, and they really want to feel that feeling of letting go and completely trusting and completely surrendering to the process. And it's exciting for them. A lot of women are drawn to uh, wild dolphins, and, and they want to be somewhere different. And so when they come here, they get to receive all of the preparation more of on a one-on-one uh, basis. And then it can be intuitively led. Whatever is coming up for the mother can be dealt with in that moment. And there's many different modalities that we use. Um, but basically, the, the one way that I really like to see it is that our, our brain kind of has like the limbic and then the reptilian and then our cortex and our cortex is our thoughts and our limbic is kind of our emo- is our emotions and then our reptilian is our our movement our physical being and a lot of women what they don't realize is that the fears and all the emotions are they're stored in the limbic and we can't even remember why we have fears we can't remember these things because they're emotional especially under the age of seven so if a woman had birth trauma 
and she was born in a C-section or with forceps or just in a, um, a very difficult way, she doesn't remember that in her, maybe in her conscious, in her cortex, but in her limbic, in her emotional space, it's alive. And that is holding on. And so through meditations, through, um, through, um, through movement, through a lot of different modalities, you can kind of unlock that fear that is subconsciously stored and allow for an easier uh, birth process. It's, we can't prepare for childbirth in our heads. It's just impossible because childbirth is a natural process that you can literally be in a coma and your body will birth the baby. It's, it's true. Um, yeah. I'll just, if I could just interject briefly here. Um, in my extensive studies on the interactions between organs and the musculoskeletal system, I read a number of books written by medical doctors, osteopaths, and people that were experts on this. Uh, a lot of them came from the 30s, 40s, and 50s. And in one of the books, there was a very good description from when the witch hunts were happening in England. And in many cases, when they hung witches by the neck and killed them that were pregnant, they found that the, the birthing process was active for often six or more hours and that many of these babies were delivered while the mother was dead. Even though she was clinically dead, the uterus and the whole body was somehow able to extract enough life force from within the core energy of the body to give birth. Uh, and the child was laying there on the ground when people found it. And uh, naturally, some of these children were saved. But it's, uh, it's pretty amazing how powerful the, the whole birthing mechanism is, the body is. It's, it's tremendously magical and, and mysterious. And one of the other things you were referring to there, you know, like all pains and fears and anxieties, there's also uh, Steiner talks quite a bit about this, and so do many others now. But we also, women also are dealing with uh, their DNA and transfers of information from previous birthing challenges in their family tree. And the soul communicates very strongly through the feeling nature, which, as you mentioned, is picked up or decoded through our limbic system. So there can be many past life birthing challenges, either challenges that we've had in the womb that may leave uh, a residue of fear in our soul memory, or it can be challenges that we've been exposed to or challenges within our own family tree. And so having that knowledge and that awareness, I think, gives a woman the ability to work with somebody like yourself and realize it may not even be her own fears and anxieties that she's dealing with. But all the research I've looked at shows that anytime we heal one of those challenges through the guidance of someone like yourself or, or through a, a woman going deeply enough into herself and doing healing work, Based on uh, work like Rupert, Morge uh, Rupert Sheldrake's morphogenic field, whenever we heal any of these kinds of ancestral traumas or past life traumas, we 
make it easier for our own offspring to go through the same process. So I think it's it's very important stuff that you're sharing right there. Yeah, it. I agree 100% that I always say we can heal our future by taking responsibility for ourselves now. Exactly. And um, to me, that's just so powerful. Yet for so many, it's kind of scary because we're not used to taking responsibility for ourselves. You know, uh, if you look at the general population, um, how many people are on prescription drugs and how many people are trying to, to deal with symptoms instead of the core? And it's yeah. not easy. It's, it's not the easiest route, but it's the most fulfilling and exciting and, um, for me, route of tapping into myself and be willing to see the pain and the hurt, even if it's not on my conscious level. Um, and, and seeing the direct effect on, on my children and then my children's children. And I think the biggest thing for women is that, or, and for everyone in general, but in the birthing process is we, we get in the way of ourselves. We get in the way of our natural ability to, to birth because we get so far into our heads and, and we think that logic is going to help us through this process. And this process is magical, mysterious. Um, it's There's absolutely an unknown factor. And that's what makes it exciting and mystical and mysterious. And for a lot of people, it's hard to let go of not knowing how it's going to happen or when it's going to happen. And the entire process itself, whether you've had zero children or you've had 10 children, like you said, every birth is so different and so powerful and it can unlock so much magically and spiritually and um, the empowerment and the excitement and healing and all these words. And yet we have like 2% of the population of birthing women who choose to attempt, even attempt to have um, a natural unmedicated childbirth. And it really, I really just question how far we've come in a hundred years or less, you know, a little over a hundred years of our, of our natural processes and it being celebrated and it being this rite of passage and how much it transforms a woman. And it doesn't mean that um, medicalized childbirth is not a rite of passage. And it doesn't mean that a woman isn't transformed because technically she goes from not being a mother to a mother. A transformation has to take place. Um, But is it creating a healthier and happier population? Is it creating a a healthier and happier world? Are we becoming healthier? Are we becoming more sick? And it just brings us down to the roots of um, in order for there to be change in our world and in our species, it has to start with us as individuals. And pregnancy and childbirth and preconception are like the three most critical and most exciting times and the most powerful. And a woman is so open for change during this time because all of the processes that are happening in her body, just by default, she is open and able to make sometimes substantial changes that might take tens of years for other people who are consciously working on their body but because of that sacred time of her being open. So it, it's really a great opportunity to just surrender and, and 
dive into oneself and um, and trust in the process and and become excited for what is to come, even though it's an unknown. To well, be excited couple, for that unknown. Yeah, it brings up a, a couple of points I'd like to share. One is when we look deeply into the individuation process, which in order for it to happen based on extensive research by people like Carl Jung, Joseph Campbell, and many others, the process is actually called individuation. And there is a rite of passage ceremony in almost all tribal societies for the men. And birth is the rite of passage ceremony in almost all tribal societies for women. There are a few exceptions, such as um, shocking shocking, but it's a cultural difference. In some African regions, they remove the women's clitoris as a rite of passage, which is, it's a cultural concept. So it's easy for us to judge it, but it's just, that's their system of their way of relating and and their own system. So the, the key point that I'm leading to is that one of the challenges that I see, and as you can imagine, I've worked with countless women that are, that have had or are having complications uh, at any stage of the birthing process, including getting pregnant. But because we have become so um, programmed to turn over the responsibility for ourselves to people wearing white jackets, doctors, which are sort of a, a an archetype of the priest from religion, conveying itself through the medical community, which makes it very effective for for programming. But the point I'm getting to is that when women go through the standard hospital births and, and constant action with doctors and being told, eat this, do this, don't breastfeed, do breastfeed, don't do this, don't do that, they take away, they lose the opportunity to go into themselves and access their intuition and access the mother archetype that's that's working through them, which is really the wisdom of the entire universe. And, and any being that's ever become a mother, be it an insect or an animal, etc., is tapped into the archetype of the mother. So the, the wisdom held in space, the wisdom held in the non-local reality of consciousness that exists everywhere, that is activated when any woman becomes pregnant is there for us. But if we keep externalizing our ability to make our decisions to perceived authority figures, the sad part of it is, is that we may go, a woman may go through the birthing process, but she may not actually have gained the individual element of the individuation process because she's turned that over to somebody else. And I think that the process that you're guiding women through is really to be there to support them where their support is needed because there's something that they don't know but need to know from someone that does know, such as a midwife. But really, it sounds to me like you're really guiding people, women, into using the wisdom of the universe and the wisdom of their body and the wisdom of their instincts and their intuition so that they truly can complete as much of that process and become an individual and become a woman in that process and have trust in themselves, which I think is critical. Yeah. I mean, that is the key and the foundation. Um, there's a pretty famous obstetrician, uh, Michelle Odent, who really pioneers 
this natural birth movement. And he specifically states that a woman should be left basically by herself to go through this process. And that the midwife is there basically to hold space for the woman. And she sits in the corner and she knits. And she just is very out of sight, out of mind. And there's a very like turning point in pregnancy. It's usually called transition in the medical field or in the process of birth. When an unmedicated natural birth is occurring, a woman might actually feel like she's going to die. She might even say it out loud. She's like, I'm going to die. I can't do this anymore. And that's like the pivotal time when all of the hormones are being released and the baby is about to be birthed. And if there is a woman there or a doctor or anyone there who starts talking to the mom, oh, no, you're not going to die, honey. You're doing great. You know, it's all positive, wonderful reinforcement, yet it instantly takes her out of this primal birth where she's more in her limbic and reptilian um, brains and brings her back to her head. Yes. And and as much as I believe that doctors and nurses and, and they think that they're trying to help by talking to women during this time, even midwives, um, you know, it's you're really taking away from their rite of passage. You're taking the, them out of this huge transformational pivotal time that is extremely a small uh, period of time. Uh, literally, it could be within minutes up to, you know, an hour or so. But usually in um, an unmedicated birth, this time is very short and it's huge. And and then that's when the natural ejection of the baby um, comes. And then that rush of hormones and, and the mom and the baby. And then even right after birth, not to say a word, to let the mom just be, not start you know playing around with the baby and wiping the baby down and asking the mom questions. I mean, it it totally detaches from that limbic imprint now that's being put on the baby and that process the baby is going through. It's like, it should be extremely quiet and peaceful and the dark, you know, the, the light's low. And, and just to make that transition as beautiful and empowering and as natural as I believe it should be. Um, so, yes. yeah. Uh, yeah. I think, I think these are all the gems that was why I wanted to share you and, you know, I, I've had access to you and conversations with you, and, and I know how much time and energy you've put into mastering all these things so you can be a safe place for a woman to go to have an authentic natural birthing experience. One of the things you are highlighting there is is this interacting and talking, and and, you know, the hospital environment is very logical mathematical, logical, cause and effect. It's very, very left brain. And it's also, as you know, highly patriarchal. And this whole rationality, logic concept really has deep roots in uh, Western philosophy going all the way back into the Greek philosophers and Aristotle and, and many of these types of people. But it's it's a, it's a, it's a, I think it's a very important thing for women to realize that that way of relating is essentially masculine. And if people aren't aware of the fact that if you just simply look at the Tai Chi symbol, 
yang is the complementary opposite of yin. And yang, masculine, rational, is equally supported by the unrational. And our culture is so hell-bent to try to control the outcome of everything from stocks to schedules to projects to getting homework assignments done to getting the shopping done that they they leave almost no room for the interconnection with the unrational and the whole concept of soul is highly unrational it's intuitive it's instinctual it's feeling based it's not mathematical logical and the process you're describing is really giving a woman a chance to allow the unrational elements inside of her to come forth because the unrational is the creative element. The unrational is the spontaneous. The unrational is the intuitive. It's the part of us that knows what to do faster and more completely than the logical, rational part of our brains that have been programmed through ideas can ever respond. And and as you know, there are situations in a woman's birthing process where the right thing done at the right time from a contraction or a change of body position to a change of breathing depth or rhythm can be the difference between um, less pain or more pain, an easier birth or a harder birth, no drugs or more drugs, uh, an episiotomy or no episiotomy, uh, and, and a long, long list of these things. So I think what I'm trying to share here as a man and a therapist who looks into these things quite deeply and has looked into himself deeply is that one of the great gifts of the process you're offering is that the preparation, the training, and the process itself gives a woman permission to be inside her natural, intuitive, unrational way of being, which is so pushed out of people in hospitals. They want to make all the decisions for you. They want to tell you what to do. They treat you like you don't know anything. Um, So I'm grateful that you're putting both halves of the brain together in your process and giving people permission to be um, deeply connected to the wisdom that exists within all of us. Yeah, thank you. And I believe as entering into motherhood, that once a woman is able to trust in that intuition and she births in that space, she's able to trust in that intuition through mothering, which is, again, another highly intuitive process. I mean, every child comes out so differently and our relationships are so different. And if we tried to have a mechanical way to how to mother, I mean, I, it's just, part of how it's leading to so much stress and disease and yeah um, yeah, so and each each child and this is one of the things i've had to work with parents on because i've had many cases where parents are having challenges with children and one of the things I, i help parents understand is many parents have a sort of a mechanistic uh i almost would say darwinistic view that each child is their child and each why would one child be so radically different maybe a temper tantrum wild child and the other one's so sedate and cuddly and i I always remind them that 
you may be responsible for giving the child the DNA. Mother makes the body of the child within her body. But each soul that comes through is a very unique being. And that being has its own challenges to work through so that it can grow in this lifetime. And those include how the body is developed, whether or not it has limitations, how it's birthed, what kinds of challenges does it go through? I mean, our spiritual growth, in my personal opinion and observation, starts from the moment of gestation and each soul is unique and it has its own process. So the point that I'm getting to, aside from what what I've already said, is that it's not a mechanistic process of just giving birth to another one of your children like a machine makes copies of toothbrushes or, or hairbrushes or any repeated manufactured process. There's a soul involved and each child is a relationship and has its own unique needs and its own unique challenges. And I think a lot of parents don't actually see that key element of relationship. They just look at it as another physical body being birthed, but don't look at the intimate soul connection that's going on there. Yeah, very much so. I would agree with you 100%. And it, what are your, oh, no, yeah, I was just going to say it's all interconnected to our busy lives and not even taking responsibility to connect with our own soul first and understanding a soul relationship, yet alone, you know, another soul coming in, another soul coming in, another soul coming in, and then feeling like if you just provide to them what you think you're supposed to provide food, water, your idea of love. And that they should just listen to you and things should be fine. It's like, it's a big awakening as a mother that that's not how it works. <laughs> no, no. And th- these are some of the exciting things uh, I want to get into. And, and we have lots of very interesting things. And one of the questions I wanted to ask you is, uh, what are your thoughts on hypnobirthing? I think that's a fairly well-known uh, prep process for expecting mothers um, Angie and I went through it. I'd been through the Le Mans. Uh, I think it's Le Mans. I don't know if it's Le Mans or Le Mans, but I did that when I was 18. My first son was born when I just turned 18. So I was actually uh, 17 when I was going through that training with my first wife. Um, the hypnobirthing process, um, I, I imagine for, for a lot of people, it was um, useful for myself. I didn't I found myself having a hard time staying engaged. It didn't really captivate me as anything, you know, that just made me want to really pay attention other than the fact that I was just there to participate with Angie. Um, Like I said, I think there was some good information in there. I'm just curious, uh, how does your approach differ from uh, like a hypnobirthing type class? Yeah, well, I believe with the hypnobirthing type class, the goal there is for a woman to be able to put herself into like a self-hypnotic state, whether it's by listening to CDs or uh, audios or whatnot, kind of through a hypnosis and then being able to be in a place uh, without fear because her body is calm and relaxed and it helps take away the fear, tension, pain syndrome is I believe what a lot of the focus is there. And I, I believe it's, a great option for 
um, women who want to have a natural birth, but I don't think it gets to the root of a woman like individually. And that um, it really takes more than just listening to audios and being in this like state of self-hypnosis. Because the reality is, is when the contractions start coming, yeah, in early labor, um, it can be, it can feel pretty, I would say not easy, but it's manageable. Like you feel a contraction and you can allow yourself to go into that space and you can listen to the affirmations and um, feel good. But as you start approaching transition and then the actual birth, like everything in my mind just gets thrown out the door that if you're consciously trying to connect to. Because <laughs> that's what I found. <laughs> that's what I found in my first my first uh, marriage. You know, once she started getting heavy into it, it was like, you know, don't worry about counting the breathing. She was just like, rub here, get out of the way, <laughs> shut up. Get out of the room. Come back. Yeah. <laughs> and then, I mean, you know. It's irrational. It's like an irrational time. So trying to put some sort of rational meaning to this process is kind of just, it's, it just doesn't make sense because it's irrational. So, yeah. Um, so, yeah. So if a woman is relying on self-hypnosis and trying to be in that space of relaxation it doesn't mean it can't work for anybody. I believe it has to work for some, you know, and some people might really enjoy it. But especially if you're in the hospital, they really promote it as like, it can help you in the hospital for your birth. It's like, you have so many interruptions when you're in the hospital, like from doctors to nurses, to your partner, to medical devices beeping and needing to be checked. And I mean, it's like, that it's two different worlds. You're trying to hold on to this hypnotic world in this space that it's almost literally impossible to do. So it's, it, it, uh, you know, what it reminds me of is, you know, as a medicine man and spirit guide and, and a person who's conducted quite a large number of healing ceremonies with plant medicines. It's if you study the history of research on psychedelics for many, many years, even right up till recently, they would take people into heavy duty LSD journeys and psilocybin journeys and all sorts of things in a clinical environment, just like a woman gives birth in, in a hospital. And, you know, you know, from your experience, as well as I do, that doing a shamanic journey in a hospital would be about <laughs> the worst place in the world you could do a journey. I'm talking oh, yeah. about <laughs> and it's taking you into the deep unconscious. It's really a birthing process in itself. And so, that, you know, for guys that want to have the experience of giving birth, just go find yourself a little <laughs> shaman and get some ayahuasca or whatever, and you'll you'll have your own little birthing process. And at some point, if, it, if the time's right, I'll share some interesting things about what the Native American women did to help men understand the birthing process and how much of a transformation and how hard it is for a woman. But getting into our first stage here, preparation, when it comes to preparing for having a baby, what are some of the most common sources and topics of confusing information or false information that women and parents are given by mainstream media, pseudo experts and you know, the things that they need to be aware of and what are some solid resources for expecting parents or existing parents to study for effective preparation for birthing and parenting? Yeah. So, um, honestly, I believe 
90% of the information out there, I don't want to say it's false, but it's very misleading. And it's preparing women for a technological birth. And <laughs> yeah, that's a, good word. a robot, yeah, birth. a robot birth. I mean, just like you're saying, um, it, it was a very masculine birth where man is machine, and so yeah. woman is now like the machine, and she's supposed to follow this specific order of events in a certain time frame. And if it's not progressing along that, your machine is not functioning correctly and we're going to have to adjust it with our synthetic drugs and invasive procedures. (laughs) Yeah. And that's what the women receive, whether they're going to a doctor or whether they're going on to what to expect when expecting or baby center or all these very large websites, communities of women and that's what they're uh that's what they're being fed that's what they were fed um you know if they're they're getting information from friends from family you know like i said 98% of the population is birthing in that technocratic world so in order to I think, yeah i was just going to interject uh, uh, you know angie was part of what to expect.com for quite a while and, and she was one of their den mothers but whenever she would try to give honest holistic advice she got kickback from the higher ups so yeah. eventually she she kind of just lost her interest. But uh, if I remember right, she started looking into who was sponsoring all these things. And it turns out to be companies selling baby formulas and all these corporate interests. So what what yes. what I've seen a lot of these are is they're really just sales vehicles more than they are the kind of real support you'd get from a skilled midwife like yourself. Yeah, in some ways it's very sad, um, and but it's very true that it is a profit-driven industry. So the information that is being fed is going to help feed the profits of whether it's baby formulas, whether it's um, pharmaceuticals, whether it's the doctors, you know, insurance companies, all of these things. Yeah. So you really have to dig, uh, not say deep. I say if you're if you're trusting and you really want to have a natural birth. The sources are going to come to you, and there are many of them. Even just, um, I don't know how many people know of Gaia, but a lot of people now, I believe documentaries, movies are really great ways to get information. They're interactive. It, they're easy to watch. And on Gaia TV, there are a few different documentaries and interviews. One of them is on Elena Tornetti, who is the founder of Birth Into Being, and she really focuses on the limbic reptilian and uh, the cortex, the three parts of the brain, and has different processes and programs how to release fears, the subconscious fears, through altering women in kind of like, not a hypnotic stage, but an altered consciousness. And there's many ways that women can get there and helping to reprogram, even reprogramming their own birth, um, and reprogramming the way that they were raised and um, you know, if it was not the best way. Um, yeah, Iname has a book, oh gosh, what's it called? It's just one that's spiritual midwifery, you know, my Iname's guide to natural childbirth. There's um, birthing from within. And she's just beautiful. She's done so much work um, from birthing with women in the Red Sea or the Black Sea in Russia with uh, dolphins around. And she really learned through this process that 
women, if they were properly prepared for childbirth, meaning releasing their fears, releasing their traumas, and these are the subconscious ones that are in their limbic imprint, that there was absolutely no complications during labor or birth. So that's amazing. Yeah, I mean, incredible, incredible resource. She has a very thorough website where she has articles on the website. I mean, hundreds of articles. She does live workshops, um, a really, really great resource. And she also has a, a documentary that you can download from uh, her website. And it's a beautiful documentary that is also, I believe, called uh, Birth into Being or yeah, I think it's also called Birth into Being. But anyways, it's great, great documentary. Very easy, beautiful to watch. There's 11 births in it. Um, just very empowering for women. There's also another one on Gaia TV is In Utero, which really focuses on the prenatal psychology of the baby in utero and the woman and how her thoughts and her feelings are directly affecting the baby physiologically. physiologically. Um, and then uh, some books that are out there. Oh, there's also a documentary on um, water birth, which is another great informational piece by Barbara Harper. So great places there. There's also um, Ina Mae Gaskin, who is, you know, the founder of The Farm in Tennessee. She's a very well-known midwife. She has Ina Mae's Guide to Natural Childbirth. There's also Spiritual Midwifery that is written by her. There's another process called Birthing from Within um, that you can get the book from that. But really, like these, there's only a few, I believe, core resources that a woman can go to. And you kind of have to go back in time in a way. Like these people are um, a little bit older. I'm not older, but like, you know, they've been doing this for 40 years at least and sharing this information. Also speaking to other women who have had natural childbirths, I believe is also very uh, powerful because it's a, a direct relationship with that woman. And there's a feeling of trust. If you're speaking to a woman who's just done it or has done it multiple times, that really that that has impact on a woman greatly. Instead of just being able to read it, you get to feel the energy from that woman. Um, yes. Also, watching now. I mean, YouTube has so many natural births on it. I know I've uh, documented three of my births and put them on YouTube. I also made a documentary series called uh, "Healing Our." Well, it's called "Imagine Our World Happy: Healing Our World Through Dolphins Pregnancy and Childbirth." And I th- That's amazing. I've seen some of the videos you've put out. I think you might have forwarded me a couple of them, and I've watched them. And I think it's it's beautiful for women to, you know, there's the old saying, "Seeing is believing." When you see another woman do it naturally in in, in a healthy environment with the right kind of preparation, training, and support, you you then can believe in yourself. And I think that's why watching some of these documentaries and hearing from someone like you is so critical. Yeah, I definitely believe that there's this like direct correlation to experience and and you can't learn what to do by reading. I mean, it, I believe it's so great to have information and also finding actually what the truth is because you have to do a little bit of research to really find the truth, the truth of the history of childbirth, the truth about women who were uh dying and babies that were dying in childbirth in like the early 1900s and how it's really related to the sepsis that was happening in the hospitals and and the sickness and 
and that they weren't washing their hands and delivering babies. And it was like one out of seven uh, babies and, and mothers were dying in the hospital in childbirth. And But why? And, the, and it was just because doctors weren't washing their hands, you know, and that women yeah. were being scared, like, to that and they were being told that you know the whole witch hunt that midwives don't know what they're doing and they're putting you in harm and jeopardy and and it became kind of like advertising for advertising for women to come into the hospital and give birth and it was a huge negative in my opinion um you know it really oh, it just stripped women <laughs> so much yeah also i it's two ends women also then trusted in that you know every woman wants to have a healthy baby, right? And they want to have a good experience, but they're not realizing that the interventions that are happening, the 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 technocratic birth that is occurring is yet yeah, at that moment and your baby comes out healthy, but we're living at a time where we have the highest rate of chronic diseases and the highest rate of ADHD, autism, um heart disease, Depression. obesity, um, diabetes, asthma, allergies, like the highest. It's crazy how much it skyrocketed just in the last 20 or 30 years. I mean, like tens of thousands of percent. Yes. And so just because your baby looks healthy right at birth is we're just learning about all the implications and stress and diseases that are happening and I can't just say it's all because of childbirth, because I believe we live in this interconnected world with the earth and everything that's going on with us. You know, the food we eat, the movement that we're doing, the thoughts that we hear, the environment we're in, you know, I know we're going to get into all that stuff, but it's not so simple, <laughs> you know, like. <laughs> no, and, and, and many of the things you just mentioned about the whole birthing process and the medical manipulation of it. I don't know if you listened to my interview with Dr. Sherry Tenpenny on vaccinations yet, but what you're describing is a perfect parallel to the same issues and how uh, the medical environment manipulated the truth about vaccination, the issues of hand washing, and, and all that stuff is right in Sherry Tenpenny's expose of the history of vaccination. So if people are interested you might find it very, very eye-opening to get to the real heart of the matter on the vaccination issue, because like, you know, all sorts of things, birthing and circumcisions and do I breastfeed or bottle feed, a lot of these, as you know, Kim, are very highly emotionally charged issues. Yes. And what I always find is it's, it's the people that have actually done the least research that have the most harsh opinions, which is <laughs> quite interesting. Yeah. I mean, yeah, just going back, the the doctor who I, I did listen to that uh, talk, uh, very informative, loved every minute of it. Um, Thank you. Yeah, it's great. And um, but yeah, the doctor uh, Semmelweis is the the doctor that she was referring to, and it's the same doctor who you know was saying that if you just washed your hands, but literally they would not listen to him, and they thought that they no. knew best. And in her. Um, in Dr. Tenpenny's um, um, what is this called? Podcast. <laughs> yeah, podcast. Sorry. Podcast. You know, she said that he had witnessed the midwives and witnessed that they went and they washed their hands and then delivered their babies and they didn't have the death that was happening. Right. And so he, for 18 years after this, was desperately trying to share this news. 
like, just wash your hands. And eventually he was tricked into um, like a sane asylum. And magically, two weeks later, he was dead. You know? Yeah, magically. So, <laughs> yeah. So anyways, there's there's just so much to it. And um, that it, it's just not black and white. And people have to be open to not trust everything they hear and say, especially when it comes from the medical field. And I think a lot of people have been so brainwashed or culturally uh, washed or fo- are such followers, which there's many reasons for that, which I'm sure we can get into, that they're not even willing to open up the idea that like harm kind of was done on purpose or can be done on purpose for some sort of personal or financial gain. And yes, it's uh, that that, as you know, from the vaccination interview is a deep issue. And I was grateful that Sherry Tenpenny was dead honest about all that and, um, without railroading the yeah our interview into all the issues of that, because I think anybody who's got just a handful of brain cells connected together can look around and see that what's going on is sadly not in the interest of human health and well-being although it's heavily marketed to be, it's a business venture. You know, there's a, you know, if our healthcare system worked, it would get smaller and smaller every year, but it doesn't. So it gets bigger and bigger and more and more profitable. So it's a disease maintenance industry, not a healthcare industry, which leads right into my next question. I created our Check Holistic Lifestyle Coach Level 1 course for the general public. So anyone could understand the essentials of healthy living and what we all need to know to be healthy. So I'm curious to hear it from you. How important is it for expecting mothers or parents to get themselves healthy and what kind of consequences commonly emerge when mothers and fathers do not get themselves healthy as a prerequisite to having a new child or even parenting period? Yeah, well, I believe that it should be the number one priority for a man and a woman to focus their life on becoming healthier. Um, The consequences are huge. Like I've kind of stated is that um, women, so we have women who are unhealthy and if they're getting pregnant, even if that's even possible because our infertility rates are uh, through the roof roof higher than they've ever been. It's something like one in 10 in the U S and I think one in seven in Canada, um, you know, I mean, we were made to procreate. Like, that's why we were put on earth. And so we're obviously not doing something right if if we're unable to get pregnant. But there's also things that can so easily be done if women and men are willing to take responsibility for the foods that they're eating and for the thoughts that they're thinking and the water that they're drinking and the movement that they're doing. and um, and and it takes time. It takes dedication. It has to become a habit. You, you have to be educated on it. But the benefits far outweigh what's happening right now because the last thing a woman or a family wants is a sick child. It's like the biggest feared thing in the world. Yet we have one in 68 children having autism now. You know, we have such high increases of diseases that could be prevented if we were willing to take responsibility for ourselves and the actions that we take. And not only that, we're going to have a happier, healthier relationship with our children, with each other, because we're not going to be stressed out all the time, needing to go to doctor's visits. Um, 
I mean, the number one killer of diseases in children is cancer. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's really incredible where we have come and yet how so many people are not willing to wake up and take responsibility for themselves. It's like, okay, I got pregnant and I'm just going to follow the orders and I'm, I'm going to birth the baby the way the doctor says is the best way to birth the baby. And then I'm going to have my child and I'm going to go to all the routine doctor's visits and I'm going to have everybody else tell me how to do this without looking within myself and how is my body functioning? How am I feeling? How am I feeling? Uh, Am I happy in my life? Am I loving my life? Do I feel like I have a purpose? I mean, if we're not looking at all those aspects, we're simply just following into the same funnel that a lot of the population is in. And unfortunately, a lot of us are going to have unhealthy children and a stressful time raising children, yet alone trying to balance finances. And if you have more than one child, I mean, it can be a very stressful, um, unhappy event. And it, a lot of it, like, can be alleviated or even prevented um, if we're willing to look at ourselves and take responsibility for, uh, you know, what we're what we're eating, what we're drinking, the movements that we're doing, the thoughts we're feeling, the happiness. If we just examine those things and take steps into a healthier uh, lifestyle. Well, that's why, you know, after years and years of I've been in this field for. I think 35 years now, I don't know, 34, 35, since January 1984, I've been doing nothing but holistic health and everything related to it. So I've seen a lot come and go. And I boiled it all down to doctor diet, doctor quiet, doctor movement, and doctor happiness. If a person's not becoming clear with themselves on what is happy making for them. And they don't learn how to eat high quality food based on what their body wants, not what some book says. And they don't appreciate the absolute importance of getting adequate movement to support your dreams, goals, objectives, and just baseline health. And if they don't apply intelligent approaches to rest, then all the books and all the drugs in the world really don't help a damn thing because those are the core elements that we all have to understand. And I, you know, I've worked with tons of women over my career and I'll see things like they'll come to me and say, okay, I want to get in shape for a marathon or, or uh, for doing better in my equestrian competition with my horse. And they'll follow the diet, they'll do the training so they can go out and do well in a marathon. Then they get pregnant and it's as though they've forgotten everything and never learned anything and now they've got an excuse to eat all the uh, cake and garbage and sugar and you go stand in any starbucks coffee shop for an hour and it won't be long you'll see some woman in any phase from first to third trimester drinking huge amounts of you know triple shot espressos with uh, caramel and all sorts of sugarized garbage in them and i watched with angie on what to expect.com and women drinking all sorts of alcohol and partying. It's like, what in the world is going on? I mean, it's this, you know, and all these women are seeing doctors. It's like none of them are being educated on the essential things that are important to keep a, a body healthy. And the point I'm leading to is that if a woman thinks it's a hard job to run a marathon 
and she's willing to get herself in shape to do that. Consider that childbirth does kill women and children. And if you're not willing to do the things you need to do to get yourself healthy, as you said, not only do you bring the risks of complications for for the mother and the child way up, but when you give birth to a child that's sick or malformed or has autism or any number of these other things that can definitely be enhanced or eliminated by just good, sound, natural health principles and practices, it makes for a very, very stressful environment for the parents and the children and any existing children. And the same habits that the parents have naturally imprint themselves on the kids. And there's mountains of information on behavioral problems, ADD, ADHD, connection to diet, connection to movement, connection to things like environmental pollution, such as electromagnetic pollution from lights. And the list is very, very long. So, you know, I just, it seems like common sense, but common sense is a rare commodity today. That's why I brought it up and, and I just wanted to share that for any woman that wants to learn the basics, that's what my holistic lifestyle coach level one program is for. And so that, that can be helpful for the entire family. Um, Kim, are there any specific supplementation testing or other factors that mothers or parents should consider to facilitate a healthy pregnancy and birthing process that you want to share? Uh, yeah. I mean, so I'm not the biggest fan of testing in pregnancy uh-huh. personally, because A, I feel a lot of the big tests don't even happen until the second trimester. And if a woman isn't fully connected to her baby, like in, from the start, it's just, it's keeping a separation between the reality that she's pregnant. So unless a mom truly would not want to continue a pregnancy, if there were some sort of fetal abnormality, I'm a big believer that the trust, again, it's trust, like trusting in our body that we're able to carry children. And even the tests are not fully reliable, you know, because if one test comes back positive, then you have to do another one to confirm that it was positive. And it's again, very invasive. And then even to the point where it, like it could cause miscarriage if you do this test, specifically the amniocentesis, mm-hmm. um, the routine ultrasounds. Uh, for me, again, it's becoming that technocratic birth. It takes fully away from our being able, like our knowing that we can conceive, carry a baby to full term and give birth without all the invasive testing. It doesn't take away from how it could be very helpful. I'm not against it. It's just my personal opinion and why I personally don't do the test. I don't encourage women to do it one way or the other. I just encourage them to question their reasoning behind doing the tests if they just want to have someone say, yes, your baby's great, or yes, your baby's heart is doing this or this or this. But if there's not really a need or there's no red flags that are like, ah, maybe we should do this, I, I personally won't do it. Um, again, just some women don't even think about it. It's just that's the routines and they just follow the, the assembly line. So I just encourage to question uh, 
why these tests are being done and if they're really going to make a difference if you're going to keep the baby or not keep the baby if something comes back abnormal. And if you're not going to keep the baby, then by all means, maybe the test is the better way to go. Um, regarding supplementation, oh gosh, I am this like, I, I don't really believe in the normal prenatal vitamins. A lot of them are synthetic and they're not bioavailable for the body. Um, we actually wrote an article a long time ago called prenatal, it's like a prenatal vitamin poisoning. <laughs> Yeah, well, supplement any any synthetic supplement is a toxin in the yeah, body. Yeah, and again, a lot of women just take the prescription that the doctor gives them for prenatal vitamins, or just go buy whatever prenatal vitamin which is on the shelf, and they think that they're now supplementing their body with these synthetic vitamins, but they don't technically know what synthetic vitamins are doing and how it's actually could be causing dysfunction in their body and toxicity. And yet alone within like an unhealthy, non-organic diet. And a lot of times sometimes prenatal or women think that taking a prenatal kind of helps supplement so they don't have to eat as healthy. I mean, there's just such this concept around it. Um, I mean, if if you really want to take a prenatal vitamin, there are some good whole food prenatal vitamins on the shelves. Uh, personally, I believe in a whole foods diet <laughs> and, you know, Amen. eating from the rainbow and skinning your organic you know, fresh, local sourced fruits and vegetables from your environment where, you know, that food is carrying the the codes, the, um, you know, if there's disease going on, if there's something in the soil, there's something in the air, you know, that, that, that food that's in your local environment has absorbed that. And when you eat it, you know, it's like symbiotic, it's helping you, it's helping you to, you know, fight whatever might mm -hmm. be going on, you know, so just being educated on on the, the importance of local organic whole foods diet and how if you are eating that, honestly, I, I never really took prenatal vitamins. Even the whole food ones made me feel not so good. And um, I would get constipated and I just, I've tried them with every pregnancy thinking, you know, different vitamins there. And I was just like, this isn't for me. So really trusting in, again, her intuition. Uh, and why are yes. you doing it? Are you doing it because you're being told to do it? Or are you doing it because you believe your body really maybe needs a boost? And, you know, where are you getting these prenatal vitamins from? Um, and, and trusting the intuitive process of eating and what your body needs and how are you feeling after you eat? And are you crave, what are your cravings? And, and because your, your, your body's incredible, you know, if we trust it, um, it, it will give us the right answers. Um, you know, so yeah, I'm definitely. Um, that that's my thoughts about prenatal vitamins or supplementation testing. What was the other thing you asked? Uh, I think uh, supplementation uh, testing or just other factors a mother should consider to facilitate a healthy birthing pro process. I think you you covered it. I, I was just going to add that you know one of the mindsets that's very broad out there uh, that has infected a lot of people is the belief that. Oh, if I just take vitamins, it counterbalances and gives me whatever I'm not getting in my diet. And so oftentimes people use vitamins as an excuse to keep eating fast foods or sugary foods or dessert foods. And they've convinced themselves that because they're taking these vitamins that they'll be okay. But mothers in particular should, should be aware of the fact that a vitamin a is not food. There's, I've got studies in my library where they starved animals and 
one group was given vitamins, another group was just given water, another group was given straw and, you know, various things like that. And they found that vitamins actually, uh, I think if I remember one study, right, the cows died faster when they were on vitamins than when they were just on water. Hmm. But the key point I'm making is that, first of all, vitamins are actually plant hormones. All they do is help us metabolize, assimilate, digest, and eliminate whatever it is we put in our mouth with them. So essentially, if you're eating junk food, vitamins just enhance the ability for your body to move junk food through the system. But vitamins are not a replacement for healthy food. Uh, and, and I think women that are uh, preparing for pregnancy or are in a pre uh, pregnancy already should be aware that if you're taking vitamins, even good vitamins, but you're not doing due diligence in eating high quality organic seasonally grown food, you're really just playing another game with yourself that, that may create the illusion of safety, but it, it may not at the end of the day do anything positive for you. Yeah, definitely. Um, I've seen a number of challenges related to the fitness level of winning, women wanting to get pregnant and that have got pregnant. And the type and degree of a mother's fitness I've found can affect the birthing process for better or worse. Some of the things that I've seen, for example, is women who get pregnant that are overly fit and strong have often very tight bodies like girls doing CrossFit, Ironman training, distance running, where the pelvic girdle muscles get very tight, girls going into the gym and doing too much abdominal exercise and their abdominal wall gets very bound up. And then, of course, on the opposite extreme, it's just being completely sedentary so that they don't have adequate fitness to carry the extra, you know, 30 to 75 pounds that a woman can and often does gain, you know, Angie gained 55 pounds with mana. Um, and, you know, she was definitely feeling it, you know, we, where we go for a walk out, the, out of the house is up this pretty steep hill. And every week I could see past about halfway that, that she was breathing heavier. And by the end we were playing, um, the choo-choo song and we were singing it to each other. I think I can, I think I can. And I would be holding her hand and helping her up the hill, but we stuck to our walks. And Angie uh, was advised by the midwife because she comes from a background in fitness modeling and, and a lot of hardcore athletic training that um, not to just to stay away from any of that kind of training, just do general fitness stuff, some Swiss ball work, but nothing to really tighten her body up. Um, and I've known a number of cases where women had a hard time birthing because they just had too much uh, muscle tension around the pelvic girdle. And through the abdominal wall. So I just wondered what you might have to share with your thoughts and feelings about what is too much, what is the right type, uh, what are your concerns about exercise for better or worse for women either wanting to get pregnant and preparing or who have just gotten pregnant or are pregnant? Yeah, well, I mean, we are functional beings. We're made to move. So I am a big believer of functional movements. Uh, yes overtraining or like all the exercises that you described, like if they're too tight, um, also like the tension, there's this direct correlation, the tension of not being able to relax during birth. So um, right. a lot of times 
like women who are very tense have a hard time relaxing their pelvic floor muscles and giving birth, or they're so tight that they'll tear, you know, so, or they can have um, a rectus of, what's that called, with a separation. (laughs) Oh, diastasis recti. Also a very common experience for women who overdo their abdominals. But we also, like I said, are functional beings and we're made to, to move. So just like you teach functional movement, we have to squat. Just think about when we have our child, we have to squat to pick up our baby. You know, we have to twist when we go to sit down in the car or when we're rolling over to breastfeed our child. I mean, so the importance is how to move properly. And especially when we're pregnant and we're moving into motherhood and for the alignment of our body and so that we can birth easier. You know, and there's also the benefits of the exercises for our hormones, you know, and for the release of toxins and the exchange and removal of toxins. It's it's just like the benefits. There's a great book called um, Exercising During Pregnancy by James Clapp, I think. It's not a new book. It's, I think, from 2002 or something. But it, it it's great. It goes over all the benefits of exercise for a pregnant woman from her pregnancy to her birth, to her delivery, to um, even the first five years of the child. It goes into even that babies born to mothers who are exercising not only have a decreased chance of all of these diseases that we've been talking about, but that they're actually smarter when they test them, you know, through their testing procedures on intelligence and whatnot. So there's great benefit to Exercising during pregnancy, knowing our limitations, knowing that over-exercising and uh, wanting to keep that fit, hard body, it might yes. not be the best option right now in your life. <laughs> you know, it, it, Yeah, that, I, I think that's a, main, that's a real critical one. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many women I've heard s- say to me that they were having a C-section because they didn't want to go through all the rigors and trauma of a natural childbirth and they don't want their this or that. I mean, there's just some crazy, crazy ideas there, Yeah, I mean, but it's, there's so much, uh, you know, just as men have their ego really caught up in how strong they are and how fast they can run and how big their dick is and all this other kind of, you know, teenage pubescent stuff. Our, our female culture has really fallen hook, line, and sinker uh, largely due to media programming from the fashion industry that if their abs aren't flat and their boobs aren't perky and they don't have a certain look that they just lose their sense of self-esteem. But that kind of, um, you know, uh, body mirror-oriented way of relating, I think is very dangerous when a woman gets pregnant. Because if you try to maintain that perfectionist, look at me, I'm, I'm everybody's dream. uh, You're just not working with nature at all. Oh, for sure. And I believe it's also this, like this lack of self-love, you know, and if a woman is trying to look or be a certain way for something else besides herself, is you're already like in so much need of self-love, you know, there's so much already to work on inside of you. So 
for me and my personal experiences is I, I used to compete in fitness competitions before I got pregnant. And when I got pregnant, I still was really in my physical body and I was really training hard and wanted to be this perfect, physically fit mom. And I only gained 20 pounds in my pregnancy and I thought I was doing like all the right things physically. And, and it's not that I wasn't, but it, I was a lot tenser and my birth was a little bit harder and I had a diastasis after and I had to learn how to rehabilitate it. And, but after I gave birth and thank goodness I had a natural birth because I think this really helped me. I started to love my body even more. I loved the curves that I had. I loved the softness to it. I just became so in touch with the feminine, the beauty of the soft, sensual, feminine body that I just became in love with pregnant women, their bodies and women's bodies. I just thought it was the most incredible, beautiful um, vessel that we have. And through each subsequent pregnancy, I've embraced that more and more. And it doesn't mean that I don't like to be fit and I don't like to be healthy, but I'm, I'm doing it to the point of where I feel good inside. And it's not by looking yes. at the mirror and being like, oh, oh gosh, you got a stretch mark there, <laughs> you know, or like, oh, yeah. that baby, maybe, you know, maybe you put on a little more weight than you should have. No, it doesn't go there because I trusted in my process and I trusted that I was eating healthy. I was moving, you know, an appropriate amount for my body. The thoughts I was thinking, you know, like it's taken time and years and it's taken subsequent pregnancies, you know, like I've had four babies now, you know, I've been breastfeeding for like eight years, you know, like (laughs) I'm like, I, I've had a chance to live it and experience it and go through all these different transitional phases in my life to fully embrace and love myself and my body and the beauty that it is and for nothing else for that, you know, that how I'm able to feed my children and how I'm able to birth my children, how I'm able to feel this connection and this love and this sensuality. And it's just so magical when we can be in that space because I know what it's like not to be in that space. Yeah. I think, yeah. I was gonna. I was just gonna say that I. I there. There's a, a very natural beauty that comes over a woman when she's pregnant. I mean, I. I've got pictures of Angie. Several of them here in my office from you know various times we had a professional photographer come and you know I, I just looked at her and as she was getting bigger and bigger, she was just glowing with this very healthy, vibrant. Her eyes were bright. Her her skin was beautiful and there, there's a there's a different kind of beauty that a woman has if she just embraces it and I think any man that's a real man sees that instead of wanting his girl to look like some look a you know a twiggy or a Barbie doll out of some magazine which is all airbrushed garbage anyhow yeah <laughs> but uh, I, I just think that if women would would uh, and men would embrace that natural beauty that comes when a woman's pregnant. I think it's very special and it's really, um, it shows you how magical mother nature is and and how she can take a woman that's 50 pounds overweight and make her in some ways even more beautiful or not overweight, but 50 pounds heavier than she might normally be. Yeah. And again, I believe it's that 
separation of our connection to nature and this magical process, especially on the men's side, you know, they're not going through the process. They don't know what it's feeling like. They don't understand why their women are gaining weight. They're not able to just see, appreciate, and love in that feeling of what it feels like to know that you're becoming this dad and that your wife or your partner is carrying your child. You know, life sometimes is just going so fast, you know, that just taking that second to stop and recognize that in, in the woman um, is, it, it could be challenging for, for men. So yeah, it's when you're speaking of yourself, you know, it, you're a very small percentage of the general population. And I'm hoping and inspiring for this, for this change, you know, that I believe is slowly occurring. Yes. Well, you, you sort of segued into my next question and and remember, I said earlier I was going to talk about the the uh, Native American Indian women. Well, the the Native American Indian women a long, long time ago, I'm you know thousands of years ago, I would imagine. I don't remember the exact date, but many people don't realize this. But the Native American women created the process we now know of as the sweat lodge, specifically to introduce and indoctrinate men into the experience of being pregnant because they found men were too emotionally detached from what it really takes a woman to be pregnant and to carry and to give birth. And so they wanted to come up with an experience to indoctrinate the men into what it's like to be a woman. So they developed a sweat lodge. Are you, have you ever done a sweat lodge? I have done a sweat lodge, yes. <laughs> it's very. Um... You have to breathe a lot and trust and <laughs> work through it. <laughs> it's, it's very, it's very intense. Yes. And, and so, you know, the original sweat lodges, I've done sweat lodges modeled on the actual original sweat lodge. So there are small tents that will usually hold about a dozen people. And they put the rocks that come right out of the fire that have been heating up on the fire often for four more hours or all day long. So they're exquisitely hot. And then they pour steam on them. And when I did the sweat lodge, the tent was packed. You were right sardined in there and you're, and the door is closed. And when that water meets those rocks, it's very, very intense. There's prayers, there's chanting and you go through four rounds and it is definitely a birthing process. I was really fighting off heat exhaustion. I was going through cold shivers and delirium. And I, I, I think the first one I had to get out at round three and take a breath and then come back in. But the, it's a beautiful process to really introduce a man to the kind of stress a woman has. And each round you go in, it's like the woman's getting more and more pregnant. And then the final round, you get to make it through and come out of the Tent, which would be like the child coming out the vagina and into the into the world. So, for any man that's wife or girlfriend or partner is pregnant, in order to cultivate some empathy, I would encourage you to find a properly run sweat lodge and go get introduced to the very process that the wise women of native cultures developed to indoctrinate men into having empathy for what their woman was going to be going through. And so that leads to my question, the health of 
the relationships between spouses or partners, in my experience, is a critical consideration for those wanting to have children. Um, I've studied the work of people like Joseph Chilton Pierce, Rudolf Steiner, Daniel Siegel, uh, Ken Wilber, uh, Daniel, I think it's Daniel Brown. Um, and recently I, I finished a course on attachment uh, attachment syndromes, which is how the mother and the child bond and, and the parental bonding and the effect on the child's uh, physical, mental, emotional development and behavior. And uh, Diane Poole Heller's attachment program is an, a series of audios that I, I think is very, very good because it's brought down to a more palatable level if you're not a professional therapist. Um, I've also studied a fair bit of modern science and the influence of the parental relationship the family relationship and the home and environment and the objective influences as factors that uh, influence the infant's development and, and their brain and their behavior. So it's very clear to me from my life experiences and my work as a therapist and my research that parents wanting to have children should seriously consider working on their relationship or getting professional counseling before attempting to get pregnant if they want an optimal healthy relationship during the pregnancy and during parenting, particularly the rigors of the first year. I think you know that very well. The first year is the toughest for parents due to lack of sleep and, and for new parents, all the, the, you know, the unknown factors. So I'm wondering how you feel, Kim, when it comes to the issues of working on the relationship between the mother and the father, the expectant mother and father, the boyfriend, the girlfriend. Uh, how important do you feel that is to create a safe environment for the mother and for the father, but but also because that's the environment that programs the child? And where do you think that work should begin? Yes, uh, definitely. Again, another priority, like an easy way for me to see it is that a stressful mom is going to carry a stressful baby and birth a stressful baby. And we know that stress is the number one, you know, killer, basically. So the relationship is so, so important. And if a mom is receiving love, support, nurture, care, bonding from her partner, her body is creating hormones and chemicals, specifically oxytocin, which is providing an optimal environment for this baby to grow and to thrive. On the other hand, if she's feeling down, she's feeling her partner doesn't love her, he's avoiding her, or if there's any tension or if there's fighting and aggression, her body is in a state of fight or flight, you know, and cortisol. And then her, yeah. her baby is receiving or growing in a state of stress. But yet we know that, it's really hard for the body to grow and develop when you're in a state of fight or flight because that's not the role of the body. That's not the, the environment. That's not the proper environment. So already then in utero, the, the baby is learning that it's not safe out in this world. And that's not a mental thought. You know, it's a chemical thought. It's a chemical being. So that's part of the limbic imprint that I was talking. It's the emotional feelings. And it's even better to seek maybe guidance or assistance or some sort of support. There's this really great book called Becoming Us. Um, and 
I think it's by Ellie Taylor. She's from Australia. Um, a friend wrote this beautiful book and it really helps address the importance and also gives you different ways on how to connect with your partner, how to be on the same page in many ways, how important it is the love and the respect, the communication to bring up your fears, to bring up any questions you might have, to think about the future, to think about roles, responsibilities. Because as I know it, like when I was pregnant with my first child, I didn't have any of these resources available to me. And I just thought, you get pregnant and you focus on your pregnancy and then you have your baby and everyone's on the same page and we just continue in life. And it was nothing like that whatsoever. And I I realized that we didn't communicate. Like we didn't have enough self-knowing within ourselves of the process that we were going through. And we weren't strong enough in our relationship to communicate and accept one another's differences, to find a middle ground, to be excited about a middle ground that, like you said, within the first year, our relationship was over. And it happens many times. I think the highest divorce rate is between the age zero and two after they have a child. You yeah. know, so there are so many stressors and unknown factors that happen during the pregnancy between all the emotions that a woman is going through, the hormones that are going on, the way that she's feeling about herself, the weight gain. Uh, there's so much going on. And that's just part of it. But definitely, if you can build a strong relationship of trust, of confidence, of communication, nonviolent communication, and have this interaction between each other before getting pregnant, as you go into the pregnancy, it becomes this beautiful dynamic. And it doesn't mean there aren't going to be stressors and things aren't going to come up. and But you're going to have tools and practice of how to navigate through those for the best outcome. And if you have those tools and those practices, just like anything, it's habits. We have to be aware of our thought patterns, the way we react to people, not taking things personally, um, trusting in ourselves, you know, having empathy for one another, for being able to sit and just listen and not being in control and not having to be right. And there's all these different dynamics. <laughs> and so yeah, are we, it's, it's, yeah, it's really important. Yeah. Like, are we willing then to take the time to focus on our relationship with our busy jobs and our busy days and all the things that we have to get done? Like, are we just cruising in life in this like, got to get things done and there's not enough time for A, B, C, and D and just keep going so you can wake up and do it again and wake up and do it again? Or are we going to step back and reflect and look, look from the outside in? Like, we want to bring a child into this world. Like, what what do we need to do for ourselves? Like, are, am I 100% happy with who I am and the life that I'm living? Do I want to bring a child into this right now? You know, because it's so important to be in touch with oneself and one's purpose and one's value system as you bring a child into the world. Otherwise, it's kind of chaos in a way. You get pulled in so many different directions and you don't have your internal compass. You don't have your little home space of like, okay, this is my truth. These are my values. This is what I believe in. And it doesn't mean that they're not going to shift and change as we learn and grow and evolve and 
spiritually, mentally, physically, all of these things. But if we can come back into our core space and trust and know like, okay, this is what's important to me. And I want to hold that space for this being coming here. I want to be the best person that I could be. And what does that mean? And so if both parents can get on board, it doesn't mean that they're going to be the same person, you know, but once you're in alignment with yourself, it's much easier to hold space for another person to find their alignment. But if you're not in alignment with yourself and the other person's not aligned with themselves, there's so much conflict and chaos without even really a root, like not even knowing why it's going on. So, you know, to be able to clear that space, to create this sacred bubble before getting pregnant is ideal. I'm going to admit I didn't do it. (laughs) You know, like I've, I've learned the harder way or not harder, but in my process, I, I trust and believe in my process has been the way it is for me to be where I am now. I, I love it. I love every part of it. But I see the direct relationship because I had a stressful pregnancy in sense of mental, emotional. I wasn't in complete alignment with who I am. I had a lot of questions. I had a lot of the searching on the outside of who I'm supposed to be, what I'm supposed to be doing, how it's supposed to look like. And although I had a beautiful natural birth, that didn't alleviate, you know, the imprint that was left on my son. And to this day, he's the one who I believe has the emotionally hardest time in life right now. And um, I definitely will correlate it to the imprint that he received in utero and for his first, you know, five years of life until I became more in alignment with who I am and was able to have different tools and resources to help heal myself and heal him in a way. And he's still on his adventure. That's also a part of it is that we can't control our children and their emotions and their feelings. But what we can control is the environment that they're growing in. And that's the only time we will have 100% control of our baby, you know, because they're bathing in everything that we're doing. Yeah. They're full. They're in full download, full download mode with absolutely no conscious thought whatsoever. So it's all just being imprinted right there. One of the things I tell people, because I do a fair bit of relationship counseling as part of my work is one of the strategies that I give parents and, uh, you know, people that have children. So even if they're like, if a, woman finds a new partner and the kids are no longer, the kids aren't actually the, he's not the birth father. So, but he's still now stepping into a surrogate parent role. I say the important thing to remember is to handle your relationship challenges exactly how you want your kids to handle them when they run into the same challenge, because you are wiring them right now. You are building in the software for how they deal with, challenges and relationships and they will simply emulate you until they themselves reach a crisis point or have some motive to go get skilled counseling. Um, one of the books that I wanted to share, and I, it's by Joseph Chilton Pierce, and the exact title may be slightly wrong, but Penny will get it right for the show notes. The Biology of Transcendence by Joseph Chilton Pierce. And in that book and several others that I have in my library, he shows that very, very clearly that the amount of cortisol produced as a product 
of the relationship between the mother and the father and the environment that they're in is the key uh, key factor on the formation of the child's brain. And there are now numerous books showing how the child's brain grows and development uh, grows and growth and development occurs. And Joseph Chilton Pierce shows that when a child is raised in an environment where mom and dad are fighting all the time, the higher levels of cortisol, which cross the placenta into the fetus, wire the nervous system and build a brain. And they've shown through MRI scans and various uh, fMRI and various technologies that children born in stressful environments, i.e. parents not getting along, actually have much more developed circuits in the brain that deal with combat. They, he calls them street fighters. Joseph Chilton, Chilton Pierce says they are born natural street fighters. And the children whose parental environment is much more loving and conducive to optimal parenting are born with much more frontal lobe and prefrontal cortex, which is where we process creativity, thinking outside of the box, novel solutions to problems, and managing our limbic flow. And so there's hard research showing that if the parents aren't getting along, they produce a child who is actually wired for combat. And those are very hard children uh, to deal with because they come into the world with this search and destroy type circuitry already activated. Um, you mentioned nonviolent communication. My favorite book, and I've I've been involved in nonviolent communication for a while. My mother and her husband are teachers for the uh, nonviolent communication organization. But like, it's a new language, as you know. It's, it it's takes quite a, a transition to get to it. It's something I'm still working on. But I, I came across this book in my research, and I absolutely love it. It's a small little book. Quarter, it's a quarter page size, a pocket, but you literally stick it in your pocket. It's called Nonviolent Communication, The Basics as I Know and Use Them by Wayland Myers, Ph.D. And this is a magical little book. I highly, highly recommend it to expecting parents or parents that are, are existing parents that have children because the relationship is so critical uh, to the development of the parents and to each other. The other comment I wanted to share is that one of the things we have a problem with in our culture, which, as you know, is very I or ego oriented, what I want. It's always like most of the battles and relationships are I'm not getting this. You're not giving me that. And the little rule that I always try to remember is there is no I in we. And when we're in a relationship, part of our growth and development is to, is to realize that the relationship has a life of itself, of its own. So first we have to do our healing work on ourselves and, and be clear about what it is that brought us into relationship. What is it, what is it that we're uh, sharing from ourselves with this person and what are they sharing with us that enhances our life and helps us grow? But then we have to also look at the relationship as something beyond either of us as individuals. And the relationship is the marriage of the two of us to create a third. You know, Jesus said, whenever two or more get together in my name, I will be there, which means there's always a third created. In Jungian psychology, they talk, I've got an entire book on the third person that is created 
whenever the therapist comes together with the, uh, the, the client or the patient. And when we're in a relationship, one of the key things is to realize that in order for the relationship to be healthy, we have to look at what it is that I need as an individual, what it is that you need as an individual, and where is there a challenge for each of us to get what we want. And that's where the relationship becomes the living entity. And we say, okay, for you to be able to have this, I'm willing to compromise this of what I want. And for me to have what I want, what are you willing to compromise so that so we find this harmony, this meaning in the middle, and that's what worship and sacrifice are all about. And if you if you can't worship the person that you're having children with, and that you say you love, and you can't sacrifice for them, then it really says that the relationship is built on on a false premise, and trouble is going to happen, and, and and that trouble is going to be imprinted into the kids. And the and the warning light there is that you're going to be looking at yourself for the rest of your life, as long as that child's walking the planet, because they're going to mirror you back to you. And sometimes it's more painful to see us in our children than it is to see us in ourselves. <laughs> okay, Kim, well, we've, we've really had some great exchanges, and I'm really hoping all of you that are listening are enjoying it. We're now moving into the stage pregnancy. So, Kim, what are the common challenges a woman faces in her life when she becomes pregnant? pregnant? And what does she, husband, excuse me, and what can she, the husband or family members do to create an optimal internal and external environment for the development and integration of the child? So, you know, just to restate, once she's pregnant, she goes, oh, my God, I'm pregnant. What are some of the things that she can do, the husband can do and family members can do to really nurture? In other words, to, to build a womb outside of the womb so that everyone realizes, okay, there's a pregnancy happening. We've got a new child on the way. Let's all be on our best and really support mommy and do the things we need to do to be adult about the process. Yeah. So I think when a woman becomes pregnant, every woman, whether she wanted to be pre become pregnant or not, there's still kind of the shock factor. Uh, oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and Oh, do I know that? Yeah. And um, that in itself is like this huge emotional, uh, a lot of different feelings coming up at once. And am I ready for this? Did I really want to be pregnant? Am I going to be able to do this? Are we going to be able to do this? Right. So there's, this, there's a lot of emotions running through on both ends of the partnership, I imagine. And once that initial shock period is over and a woman is, the family wants to keep this child. Um, it has to be known that all of her systems are very open right now. And she's extremely sensitive and a lot of different hormones are running through her body. Her body is physically changing. Mentally, she's changing. Emotionally, she's changing. Spiritually, she's changing. She is becoming a new person. She no longer will be just a woman. She is becoming a mother. So she's in this transitional spot. So if a family or a partner can really honor the sacredness of this beautiful time of how kind of creating new habits and patterns of how much can we honor her from it doing little things around the house of extra cleaning to dishes, to laundry, to cooking, to 
getting flowers, doing foot massages, back massages, um, communicating how much you love, how beautiful she is, um, how Mm -hmm. she's growing this beautiful baby, how her breasts are growing and how much he loves them, but don't touch them. (laughs) 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 Don't try to suck on them. You can't get the milk. It's for the babies only. No, but, um, (laughs) you know, but to, to caress her curves, to encourage her to caress her curves, to how beautiful her glow is and her hair is just uh, thickening and she's gorgeous and constantly reminding her of how beautiful she is and how beautiful that she is carrying our baby, this baby. And it's not easy, especially the way a lot of us are living. So it has to be a conscious effort (laughs) in every single way. And even if you write like a little affirmation or have it on your phone as a buzzer of like, I am going to honor my wife today or you know, the mom-to-be, whatever you call her. And you can even put like a list of five or 10 different things so that way you don't have to think about it. And you can just go through the list and and honor her throughout the day, sending text messages while you're at work, you know, how much you love her. Send me a picture of your growing belly. I miss you. Tell the baby I love him. You know, there's mountains of things that we can do, but it has to be a conscious effort because it's so easy to fall into the, daily habits and patterns and allow negativity to influence yourself and yet then influences your interaction with your partner, which is directly in influencing the growth and development of the baby. And of yes. the baby. So, so many things you can do, but the part is you have to consciously create the opportunities to do it. Yes, it really requires a a willingness to pay attention. And that leads into my next question, because I really, having been through this, I'm, you know, uh, Angie's pregnant now. So this is my third child, two with Angie and one from a previous marriage. Um, You know, I I was never educated on what to expect uh, when a woman gets pregnant, how she changes how her moods change, her need for attention changes, her need for reassurance that you love her. You know, there's a lot that men are not educated into the awareness of, and I think it causes a lot of problems for men. I mean, I'm fortunate that I've studied a lot lot, and I have a lot of great resources and I'm, you know, I really love, you know, as you know, I have two wives. I love them both. And, and so for me, I do my best to really deal with wants, feelings, and needs. What are you wanting, feeling, or needing right now? Is there a specific request that you can make so I can support you? And even that said, I still have had some you know bumps along the way because there's just times where I'm tired and I've worked hard all day and, and Angie might need me to really just be present with her and you know, women are very process oriented in the way they relate and men are very outcome oriented. So one of the things that I, and I know all men are, or most all men are like likely to fall into this trap is when a woman's saying, you know, my back is really bothering to me today. I'm feeling tired. Well, the man usually rattles off a bunch of fix it items, which isn't really what she wants. She wants to just connect to you and, and move her feelings out and share them and dissipate them through the relationship. So what I wanted to ask you 
from your experience and your knowledge as a woman and as a woman who's given birth four times, what can a man expect to change in his relationship with his wife or partner when she becomes pregnant? And I'm talking about things like energy levels, personality changes, sensitivities, uh, diet changes such as cravings, sexual desires, need for touch and related. So if you're giving an announcement to the men of the world saying, listen up, boys, from the wise midwife who's had four babies and is a woman, what would your announcement to us males be? Uh, I think a big one is that get ready because we are now going on uncommon ground. (laughs) (laughs) New ground. We're charting new territory. New territory with a lot of (laughs) unknowns. Because let me tell you, as being pregnant four times, I cannot predict when I'm not going to feel well, when I'm going to be emotional, when I'm going to cry, when I'm going to be happy, when I'm going to hang on you and love you and kiss you and want to have sex till there's no tomorrow. And then I'm not going to want to see you and touch you for two weeks. <laughs> you know, like we are so not um, what, what, machines. <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah. We are emotional we feel, we allow things to move through us. We allow things to flow. We don't stop them. We don't try to block them. Naturally, we are just so much more open and we can't control them. And if we try to, it causes more tension, more chaos, more unhappiness, more confusing, right? So like we are open vessels of allowing so much to come through us that we cannot guarantee or promise you that we are going to be any one way or not. But what men can do is to, um, A, understand this, because you guys are more in the understanding and logical process, even though it might not be understanding and logical, just try to (laughs) not take (laughs) anything personal, like through the mood swings, through why we're crying. Like, Like you said, you can't fix us. You can't fix our problems. There's nothing to fix. It's a lot of it is like a releasing and, and accepting. So like you said, ask, needs, wants, <laughs> desires, feelings. feelings. Yeah. What is your specific request? Yes. And at many times, a woman might not even have an answer to you then. Maybe we... But she may just want to talk yeah. to you. She might just want to tell you, this is what I'm feeling. Yes. She, she might say, I'd love it if you would rub my feet. Or, you know, I, I pretty much rub Angie's feet every day. There's rare that I don't. But yeah. I feel it's the least I could do. And she always says, thank you for rubbing my seat. And I, and I say, you're carrying our baby. Yeah. You are carrying our baby. So if, if it's the least that I can do to help you feel better in your body. So sometimes it's, can you rub my back? My shoulder hurts. My neck hurts. Or... Can you put a little traction on me or can you can you take the dog out for a piece so I don't have to do it? I really don't feel like moving right yes. now. Um, and, and, and these are very, very important things, because like you said, a, a woman's going through a radical transformation process that she's in the total flow of in the now. It's not like she has any red light, green light, yellow light computer warnings that you are about <laughs> to have an emotional outburst. Yeah. And, and, and again, we can be triggered because we're so open by the the limbic imprint still, like things that we're not, we don't even yeah. know why we're triggered, but because we're already open, we're kind of already in this altered state. It's not our normal state of being. 
So we're already so sensitive and uh, susceptible to outside influences that we have absolutely no reason consciously why we're reacting the way we're reacting or having that emotional feeling. So uh, of being in full acceptance and supporting our our partner during that process. And yes, connection. A woman loves connection, like full attention, connection and touch. Um, yeah, there. It, I know it helps me so much and doing things for me. Like I'm tired sometimes. <laughs> I don't want to have to cook two meals a day every single day and do all the laundry and all these other things and run a business and take care of like, you know, like we, we do so much and little things when, when my partner does small things for me and my partner's amazing, um, but when he does small things for me, my love and my heart just opens up so much deeper. And then I'm physically attracted to him more. And then I want to make love to him more. And I believe making love is like one of the guys, the guys need, like that's his feeling of love in a way, you know, is that yeah. sexual intimacy. And for a women, we have to kind of like get ourselves ready or prepared. It's not so simple in a way. It's just kind of different the way that we go about making love and the way a man goes mm-hmm. about making love. But I know that when he's doing those extra things for me, I really, my heart just opens and I'm like, oh, I just want to make love to you. Thank you. <laughs> like this is my, my openness. So um, yeah. Well, there's also the reality that uh, women can get much, much more horny when they're pregnant. Yeah. And so depending on the health and the vitality of the man, that can either be a great <laughs> thing or it can be a real drag. It's like Really? Again? Because, well, yeah. I mean, honey, this is the fourth time today. <laughs> and, and, and so I think it's important for men to realize that, you know, this is a time when you really have to be conscious about managing yourself, about not overworking or trying to be a superhero in the gym. Because if you come home spent and you have nothing left for the relationship, well, you're opening Pandora's box. And it's really, it really indicates that you're still too oriented in your I-ness as opposed to the we-ness of the relationship. The other thing that I see is in our culture, especially men still, a lot of men still see women as almost like the the person that does everything they need to get done that they don't want to do and and uh you know i'm 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 from a farm so in, on a farm at least in where i was raised that the women did certain things the men did certain things but when a woman's pregnant you can't you can't play that game you have to be willing to wash the dishes or clean the floor or uh, pick up uh you know clean poopy diapers and get your hands dirty and and whatever it is and if 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 you're not if a man's not really committed to the relationship, then it really uh, will magnify the issues that are, are un- lurking all the time that just haven't, uh, you know, maybe risen their head yet. The other thing is, as a woman gets more tired, especially when the baby's born, I think that first year is the toughest. And I actually studied a university level course on sleep science, and they showed that there's objective measurements that a woman's brain can shrink as much as they gave the cc's of volume but they said as much as one centimeter in the skull due to sleep deprivation and the and the, uh and neurogenesis being hampered by lack of sleep so as a woman gets more tired fatigue is a form of stress 
Uh, it elevates cortisol levels, causes them to forget things, which, as you know, is called baby brain. But the key point I'm going to is that the more stressed we get, all the research on psychological development and uh, attachment disorders shows that the more stressed we are, the more of our unconscious programming or what is commonly called the shadow begins to emerge. And so, you know, people start getting short with each other and, and choppy and bitchy and nasty and and it just creates a lot of unhealthy tension. And, and I know, uh, you know, I had to really go through an adjustment with Angie because she was uh, she's a very different woman than, than my first partner that I had Paul Jr. with. And fortunately for me, because I have we have Penny in the house with us, Penny's a very, very stable human being and a very mature, intelligent woman. So having Penny there with us was, was an amazing thing. And we've all said many times, we really just hats off to, first of all, to any woman who tries to do this by herself, because God forbid, that's just a walk through hell. And two, our hats are off to, to parents that don't have a, 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 another partner. I mean, Angie's just grateful as all get out that Penny's there all the time and supportive. And so Mana really has two mothers and he loves them both. And, and so having, having two wives, they support each other so much. And, and if you're having challenges with one, the other one becomes kind of the, the unbiased uh, helper. And I found that great. And I think that's one of the reasons that tribal cultures in many ways did a lot better with raising children because everybody supported the women and everybody supported the mothers and, and the children had, you know, a perceptual uh, number of daddies and many mommies so that it dispersed the stress much more evenly throughout the tribe. And we've really, you know, got into these complications of monogamous and religious ideology that leads people into situations. And when you look at the uh, the current statistics on marriage is that the average marriage today only lasts 2.5 years. And so when you, like you said earlier, you know, that first two years with a new child is very tough. And if you look at the research on attachment disorders, they show that when people begin a relationship, that their true attachment style, which is often uh, problematic, only 25% of people based on research have a secure attachment, which means they had a healthy attachment to their parents, particularly the mother, but both parents and the child in its developmental phase felt safe and secure. And therefore it didn't develop coping mechanisms, which can be very hard to deal with, such as anger, outbursts, isolating themselves and many other things. But what the research shows is that when we get together in a partnership or a relationship, it usually takes 1.5 years before we start letting the cat out of the bag with our uh, our true attachment strategy or style, which can be very, very problematic if, if there's a lot of wounds in there, which is a, a, a kind of a way of me to say, if you're not at least two years into a relationship with your partner, you really don't even have a clue who you're with yet. You're probably still just sex drunk and staring at each other's asses in awe and don't realize that there is a mountain that you don't know about each other. So waiting until you really feel secure in the relationship, I think is a wise thing to do before you start bringing children into the picture. Yeah, I believe it's definitely a good 
uh, way to start for sure. <laughs> I know that after after I split up with Caden's dad, my oldest, I was so adamant that I wanted to raise children on my own because it was so challenging and so difficult and such not a good experience that I basically manifested my daughter. We basically conceived and that was it. And I had my chance to raise my daughter 100% the way that I want to raise her, right? I went so far extreme all the way to the other end. And I even then kind of lived with single moms for a while when I moved to Hawaii and having that support, like you're talking about having two moms or the tribe or it was so mm-hmm. healing for me to be with these moms. Uh, all, and we all were just women with our children. And we kind of had like a, a pregnancy birth center-ish kind of retreat center. And um, I actually went into like an anti-men kind of way in my own being where I didn't I didn't want to be in any relationship with a man. I just wanted to do it my way. And it took a lot of healing. And I even had another baby consciously knowing that the dad was not really, I mean, he's still part of his life and he's an amazing guy, but I still wasn't ready for relationship with a partner, but like something internally, these babies were just calling me. And it was like Mm. this spiritual thing of, I'm still having children, but I'm still going to be doing this on my own. And I didn't have any conflict with it. And it wasn't until this last baby after our, um, our little work together, the shamanic journey, the last one we did, where I remember the mandala that I created afterward was of a relationship of me and my partner, my partner standing behind me. And it was solid. And I was like rooted in the lava and there was the dark and the, and the light. And we were in the middle of it and balanced and beautiful. And like instant. Oh, and I had three babies in my tummy. (laughs) And Uh (laughs) and this is the time I thought I was done. Now I'm just going to work on relationship. All right. And so when I met him, he had three children. So I thought those three little babies in my belly that I had created were like our two families coming together. Those were going to be like my three uh, new children. But it was for the first time that I was, I felt I was ready to be in relationship again, because I personally wasn't ready to be in relationship. And it's night and day, like how our relationship is compared to any other relationship I've had. But I had to consciously A, be in alignment with myself and my needs and my wants and my desires and who am I and for my and my partner to show up. And then again, that third relationship of us, you know, and how to keep them kind of separate in a way, but how we keep them together in a way. We can't lose sight of who we are as individuals, but we also can't lose sight of who we are as a team. So right. it's it's really been this great, beautiful for cir- uh, full circle with this beautiful baby that we have. It was like never cried in his life, you know, and had a beautiful, magical birth. And it's just, um, it doesn't mean every way is going to be that way, but I've, I've experienced this so many different ways. I've experienced that single mom for five years and how it's like, for me, it was actually better than being with a partner because there was so much turmoil with being a, with a partner, you know? So yeah. It's not just one way or another. And I, I trust in all of our processes if we're aware of them and we're willing to learn from them and know that this is not the forever, but this is a moment in time for us to to learn from. And how do we create and move from here to being, you know, a better person? How can we be our best selves? You know, best mother. So, well, yeah. 
Yeah, and I think back to the kind of one of the rules of relationship. Uh, well, there's there's really only four things you can do when a relationship's in trouble. Number one is work on yourself. Number two is work on the relationship, which relates to what I said about the relationship being the third element or the conglomeration of the two people in the relationship. Number three is do nothing and know that yesterday equals tomorrow or Groundhog Day. Number four is get out of the relationship. There is a fifth, but very few people are equipped to do it, and that's work on yourself and the relationship. But that usually doesn't work because you can't really work on the relationship with any greater depth than you actually have authentic knowing and connection to yourself. So what you're describing is a five-year hiatus from relationships so you could really truly come to know thyself so that you could attract somebody who was more harmonious with who you really were. And it sounds like that's what happened. Yes. And I am very grateful for that. And along the way, still having more children, creating different relationships. You know, I feel like all of my children have helped heal parts of relationships, maybe that I don't even know why I was unable at that moment to, you know, commit in a relationship, you know, and why I didn't want to be with a partner. And yeah, it's also magical. <laughs> it's just wonderful. It is. It's There's far more to it than the ego can yeah, wrestle with. I can't even put words to it. <laughs> what are some of the intuitive methods for connecting to the child in vitro or in the womb you teach mothers? And how important do you feel it is for expecting mothers to develop a relationship with their child while in the womb? I believe it's extremely important. The the fetus, the soul, the spirit is alive, just like you. And the more we can communicate and listen, I, I truly believe I, my children spoke to me before conception. And even one of them told me specifically who the father was going to be. And I was kind of in shock, like, what, huh? Him? Like, <laughs> are you... I've heard, I've heard stories yeah, like I'm that. just like, are you serious? Like, <laughs> but it was very clear. Like, and I... When I actually told the father, he's like, no, 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 not me. I'm all done having babies. My babies are all growing up. You know, maybe we're going to birth something bigger, you know. <laughs> uh-huh. Like a corporation. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> something bigger. I was like, oh, it doesn't get much bigger than this. Or within a month, there's little baby growing in the belly. Um, from, from him? him <laughs> yes. Even <laughs> he, he didn't uh, know. He, and then when he like, he's, he's pretty open and out there and was like, you know, there was always this part of me that I knew that there was a little boy waiting. So it has to be a boy, you know, it, it was a boy. Um, but um, yeah, so connecting like our, I believe our children also can give us guidance, like uh, the journey, helping us lead us on the journey that we're going on and also providing this optimal environment. It, it also, again, helps build the trust in a mother's intuition and knowing like you can physically even do things like um, put your hand on your belly and talk to your belly as your baby gets a little bigger and you can start feeling the kicks and just mm -hmm. ask, you know, like put your hand there and be baby, uh, you know, I love you. I just really um, sharing my love with you. You can do a little meditation. You can just share whatever's coming through to you that you want to share with that baby. And you can put your hand there and just say, if you're hearing me, if you're receiving me, you know, just It'd be great to feel that, you know, and, and you can feel mm -hmm. the direct connection of a baby. A baby will definitely, you guys are so connected. So I believe in guided visualization with connecting to the baby. 
and sharing with the baby during that time, whatever it is you want to share. If you want to share about what kind of birth that you want to have, if you want to share with like how you envision holding your baby when he he or she comes out, whatever it is that's coming through you, just to share with the baby in a sacred environment. Take time out of your day. You can write a song and sing it to your baby and connect to your baby. You can write a poem and say it to your baby. You can just literally put your hands on your belly and just be and send energy to your baby. The list goes on on how you can connect with your unborn baby. You can dance. I love dancing, dancing with your baby. <laughs> um, yeah. There's so many different things. It doesn't have to be like some woo-woo way out there um, kind of thing where I said, you know, my baby told me, you know, her father is going to be it. It can be a little bit less subtle. Um, but any moment that you take, whether it's five seconds, 20 seconds, 30 minutes, and are creating that connection with the baby. You're you're building those pathways. Like oxytocin starts going through your body. Love hormones start going through your body. You're feeling happy. You're feeling in love. You're feeling connected. And again, you're providing that optimal environment of safety and security and for actual physical growth, you know? So um, it, yeah, it's very important in many different aspects. So my next question here, if you're ready. I'm ready. So, how, Kim, how a man interacts with the fetus in the womb ranges from not at all, and I've seen plenty of that, to being intimate with their child. This can be singing to it, talking to it, sending loving intentions into the womb, all of which I do uh, when Angie's pregnant, um, more so this time because I'm much more educated and, and mature than I was when I was an 18-year-old. Um, but I like to paint pictures with non-toxic paint on um on mama's tummy and so um i'm wondering you know what you feel as far as the importance of a father for interacting that way but before you answer i want to share an interesting little story about that um when angie a while back took mana to a fair where they had a face painting booth where you could take the kids to have their face painted when he sat down in the chair to have his face painted, guess what he did? I don't know. What? He lifted his shirt. Oh, <laughs> that's incredible. And Angie immediately knew what that meant. He was thinking that, that this woman's going to paint his tummy because he must have remembered that daddy was painting the pictures in the yeah. womb. So I would say, you know, like, Oh, Mona, I just painted your wagon and, and a, I paint one time I painted his new wagon and a picture of Maggie and mommy and daddy. And I painted a bunch of pictures, but Angie and I, when she told me the story, I was like, Oh my God, that's amazing. You know? Yeah. And, and when you look at all the research, we haven't even touched on, you know, the depth of this because otherwise it would be a 10 hour yeah. interview, but the research clearly shows that the child in the womb is very connected to the father. The other, real you know i used to sing songs to him i would sing the four doctor songs to him through the womb and you know he was born by c-section due to a, an emergency complication at the very last minute but um when they took him out of her and of course they just took him right over to some steel table and cold and lights and all that stuff but he was crying quite intensely and I, it was it, it was moving me emotionally like he, he was scared yeah. 
and, and the anesthesiologist could see that I wanted to connect to him. And, and the anesthesiologist said to me, it's okay for you to talk to him. Why don't you go talk to mm-hmm. him? And so before I even walked across the operating room, I just talked loudly enough that he could hear me. I said, Mana, it's daddy. Daddy's here. You'll be okay. And he instantly stopped crying. Yeah. And I walked over there and just kept talking to him just like I did in the womb. And he totally calmed down. And, and that was the end of it. And all the doctors and the nurses in the room, it was like a choir. They looked at me and they all said almost simultaneously, he knows daddy's voice. Aww. You know, so the I've had these experiences and they're very powerful. But I think a lot of men are quite detached because they don't really realize how connected the child is into them. They don't realize that the child's got their DNA in there and a the DNA is an, a cosmic antenna. It's picking up dad's vibration right through the womb all the time 24 7 just like you can be inside your house picking up signals on a radio so what's your feelings on the man connecting to the fetus in the womb yeah i mean just like you said paul you had the personal experience you can directly see the cause and the effect of all the time and the energy and the love and the voice and the painting, the dedication that you shared with Mana through the womb had a direct correlation of when he came out and was in a state of fear, how your voice was able to bring him back to peace. So that was like a safety and security. It was, I'm going to be okay. Daddy's here. That voice is here. You know, so if a man can take that time. Again, there's many different ways to do it, but the baby can hear with and distinguish the father's voice. It can hear through the womb. You know, so if a man can sing to his baby, make up a song, do poetry, you know, it really puts a guy into that creative process in a way, you know, which Mm -hmm. actually can be fun and opening. Um, even singing to the mom, anytime that the dad is directly communicating and loving up on the baby in whatever way that is, is also bringing the mom into a state of bliss, like of gratitude, yes. of joy. of. And now again, all of these hormones are flowing through the mom of love by hearing the dad's voice or the dad's touch, which is providing a safe environment that daddy is safe to love. Daddy is a safe person. I can be okay with daddy. But if you have on the other hand of an unhealthy relationship, a lot of anger, fear, yelling, hitting, um, and the mom is feeling the stress and the cortisol is being released to the baby and it's in correlation with the father's voice or the father's touch, guess what? You're creating a separation in utero of fear of dad. And, And now you're already creating a disconnect of that. And so it's, there's a direct correlation of how much a dad can be part of this process, which is anytime he has a second, (laughs) you know, to just connect to the baby and love up on mommy. Tell mommy how much you love, how much you love baby, how grateful you are. Hi, baby. I see you. You're so beautiful. And also there's been studies done that if like you play a musical instrument, You know, and if you play like you choose one song that you've created or you love and it's whatever and you play that often, like repetitively while the baby's in the womb or you sing a song, the same song or whatever it might be, when the baby's born, 
like anytime the baby is in some sort of stress or trauma or is crying, especially in the car seat, <laughs> you know, and you can't get yes, to them. Yep. If you can sing mm-hmm. that song to them, it right away brings them back to that, that place in the womb of safety and security. And they have that song. And a lot of times it can help alleviate the stress, you know, of, of the baby because they're getting that a little bit of that love and connection when you can't be there to hold them and take them out of that car seat or um, in a time when they're stressed and you can't be there to physically hold them and tell them how much you love them and for them to feel that sensation of safety and security. So there's been lots of correlations in studies, especially with Thomas Verney from prenatal psychology, that how these specific interactions of mom and dad with the unborn baby directly correlate to outside of the womb. So, yeah, it's extremely important and fun. Yeah, and there, <laughs> it can be so yeah, much well, fun. It's, it's, it, it, it is. <laughs> you know, I, I, I naturally want to connect to my child. I, I know how important the, the voices, the touches, and our energy fields penetrate each other. So that child knows daddy's energy field. Like I said, it's got dad's genes in it. It's phase locked. Yeah. Just like when you dial my cell phone number, you pick up my phone. There's no question. You and I are phase lock right now. That's how this conversation's happening over the airways. And when we lose that phase lock, it's, inner, it's chaos or it's disruption. And, you know, I used to sing to, to Mana in the womb a lot, the Dr. Happy song that I wrote for my HLC program. Dr. Happy is the dreamer. Dr. Happy is the dreamer. Dr. Happy is the dreamer. Don't you know? Dr. Happy sets your rhythms, your rhythms set your pressure, and your rhythms and your pressure make your flow, and your rhythms and your pressure make your flow. (laughs) And Angie would tell me, especially in the first year when he would get rowdy in the car seat, she would start singing that song to him and he would calm down. I mean, it's really amazing how we're like built, wired to each other, even when we're not like within each other, right? So it's all these gifts and blessings that we have if we're open to believing in them and seeing them and experiencing them, how so interconnected we are. Um, yes. Yeah. Now this next, this next question could be very long. So maybe if you can just touch the, the edges and maybe if you have any resources just for time efficiency, what kind of changes in the home and yard environment are essential to consider for the safety of the children that need to be addressed before the child arrives. Yeah, there's definitely a lot that needs and can be done. I mean, just assessing your house and seeing where the toxins are coming from. I used, when I was pregnant with Kate in this book called Raising Baby Green, and I know it's still around. And I felt that it really gave me a lot of easy resources and things to do to check within your home to see what's safe, what's not safe from the carpeting that's in your house to the paint in your walls, to toys, to, um, you know, the household uh, detergents that you use for your clothes for, I mean, everything. Like we want to be as clean as possible. So this could like go on forever, but basically it's like, for me now it's like second nature because I just don't have anything in my house basically that can't be ingested, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, that's what it down <laughs> Yeah. To. I mean, it's just, there's so many simple things that you can use for cleaners and for, um, 
I mean, yeah, we don't need all the toxins that are created. It's all money making and it's all causing havoc on our systems and creating sick and diseases, you know? So like, I think you've said this thousands of times is that if you can't read it, you shouldn't put it in your body. Well, also, if you can't read it, you shouldn't be cleaning with it. You shouldn't be using it in your house. You shouldn't be breathing it. You shouldn't be touching it. You should, <laughs> it should not yeah. be anywhere. Um, meaning, yeah. Meaning what she, what she means for the listeners is I say, if you can't pronounce a word on the label, it's probably not good for yeah. you. Yeah, definitely. So um, for us, we've basically used vinegar and essential oils and um, that's basically it for our, our cleaning stuff. That way, you know, you don't have to worry about kids getting under the cabinet and taking out kids. They Little babies, they want to look and feel and touch everything and everything goes directly and, to the mouth. Yeah, yeah okay. they want to taste it. Yeah, it's, it's, it, it's, you know, you have to be, you have to have your, your, your radar on, you know, to, cause if you don't have that house baby protected, a child will find every can of raid, every poison, every electrical socket. I mean, if you haven't had a child, it will blow your mind how they see and smell and hear everything that you don't even remember is there. Yeah, because they're so in the now. Like every little thing that they see is of amazement and they can just spend 10 minutes looking at a speckle of dirt on the ground or trying to pick up a rock and looking at it before you know it, it's, it's in their mouth. You know, they have nothing else to think of. They are not thinking of anything. They're just present, a hundred percent present. So anything is. The other thing that I would interject here is that, you know, over the years, you know, many years since I, really started researching holistic health and and getting into issues of soaps and deodorants and all that, I found over and over again, as is Angie, as is Penny, that almost all the recipes for natural soaps and natural body care products are better than what they sell you anyhow. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, and it's uh, another thing, too, is a woman's immune system is quite heightened when she's pregnant. And Angie started having... Uh, rash in her armpit and we were like wondering what in the hell is causing that well long story made short we tracked it back to a a, we were using a natural non-toxic laundry soap but her body just decided that it didn't like it so it's very important for for everybody to remember that when a woman's pregnant even natural things can be something that the body doesn't want at certain stages and Years ago, I found research showing that the reason women have these revulsions to certain foods at certain phases of their pregnancy is because there's chemicals in foods, which we all have to adapt to. Um, You know, this is why, for example, people can't handle gluten. They can't handle the the gliadin protein fraction. Uh, Beans, legumes, all of these things have what are called defense chemicals in them. And what the research showed is that some of these chemicals are very dangerous to the gestation process. So, for example, if the baby is at the stage where it's building its nervous system and there's a chemical even in a natural organic food that is disruptive to the process, it'll make the woman feel ill or if she smells it or eats it. So a woman's in a full state of constant flux. So it's just important for everybody at home to realize that just because you think it's good doesn't mean it's good for mama at that time. So you have to really be open to investigating and exploring. Yeah, definitely. There's no black and whites. No. So when it, 
when it comes to birthing now, the, the actual birthing process, what are the key differences between birthing at home or in the hospital? And when is birthing best to do in a hospital or the best thing to do if you believe there's situations like that? And we've talked a lot about this already. Yeah. So is there any highlights that you want to cap that question off with? Yeah, when do you, when, when, when's best to do at home? When's best to do it in the hospital? Well, a woman has to really be there to trust in their body and the process to do it at home. Because if they're not there, then they're going to end up in the hospital. Um, you know, anytime you have fear or something might be going wrong and then you're so in your head, like your, your body just doesn't progress. Your body doesn't feel safe to give birth. You're in a state of fight or flight, not in your parasympathetic where you can rest and relax and give birth. So, uh, you need to really just be prepared and really be confident in yourself and your intuition and your desire. You have to have a high desire, um, to give birth. At home. And if you're choosing to have a natural birth, I believe that often birthing at home gives you a better outcome in the sense of more women who attempt a natural birth have the natural birth that they want when birthing at home compared to women who want to have a natural birth and birth in the hospital don't end up with the natural birth that they wanted. Um, so there could be reasons why you need to give birth in a hospital, um, you know, for high risk moms, it's, um, the, the option uh, of the hospital and there can be different. It's, it's such a gray area of what a high risk is because technically I'm a high risk because I had two of my children after the age of 35. Right. So that's technically one right. of the high risk, um, <laughs> indicators. So it's also yeah. really knowing what, what really is high risk. Like if you're at risk because you have some sort of bleeding disorder or, um, you know, that there's some sort of abnormality or, or there's really true things that you have a, a pelvis that is not able to give birth or things like that. Definitely. But actually the majority of women fall into the low risk category. Um, so it's also defining what really is high risk and what's low risk. There, there are questions that I would definitely always talk to a midwife and a doctor and see really where you are and you're going to probably get differing opinions between the midwife and the doctor and a midwife who is going yes. to be willing to take you on as a client, even though the doctor says you're at high risk. You know, and then there's also yes, different yeah. states have different rules of who right. can birth with a midwife outside of the hospital and who can't. You know, like we've kind of lost rights as a as a mom to birth hmm. our babies the way we want in some cases. So, yes. um yeah, in some states, it's there's like no rules and regulations, like here in Hawaii. So we can deliver any baby. It can be breech, it can be twins, it can be um, V-backs, you know, like there's kind of no laws around that, which again, has its pros and cons, but at least we have choices here. You know, in some states, there's not that ability to have the choice. So um, yeah, so that's the difference between at home. Honestly, I also believe that a woman can go into her own space in her own self, much easier. You're not interrupted. You're not in the technocratic birth. You're not being checked. You're not being talked to. You know, you don't have straps on you. You don't have an IV. You don't have all of these rituals that kind of happen in the hospital that are A, B, C, D, E, F, and G, and they have to go in order. Right. At home, there's much more leisure to the birthing process and for the natural process to kind of show itself of what is natural for that process because it's never the same. 
and right. it is trusted. Whereas in the hospital, the natural, like natural birth is kind of not even trusted. It's not even rarely seen. So they feel that there has to be some sort of intervention along the way and constant checking and making sure that things are on the schedule. So. Well, every sing every intervention comes with a nice bill, believe me. Oh, gosh, um, yes. <laughs> Angie's, Angie's bill from the hospital was astronomical. And even stupid stuff, like they were bringing her garbage Kellogg's cornflakes and pasteurized milk and all boxed garbage. And we were, you know, we brought all our own food. We weren't eating any of it, but they charge you for it. I think those, <laughs> they were like, they were like, uh, it was like $35 for each box of cereal. It was just like unbelievable. Yeah. And the, the other thing that, that comes to my mind, having been through this experience with Angie is that, you know, this is a real important thing. I think is that women need to be very careful and conscious when they're choosing who their uh, OBGYN is, who their midwife is, because the medical system is very programmed to scare you into buying tons of tests and, thinking like you said that you know home birth is dangerous you shouldn't do it and they they just set up all sorts of fears and pressures and and wangle people into buying like you said ultrasounds and everything from vaccinations to you name it and, and so i think we're in a time now where women need parents, women and husband need to really do their due diligence and do a lot of research. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to share you with everybody and the resources we've been sharing. Yeah. One of the things I, oh, I just want to share one thing is that I have had a hospital birth. So I am not anti hospitals in any way. And I believe that they are there for a purpose, but it's, important to understand what that purpose is and, yes. and it could be different for each person. But, um, and it goes into like my, my birth with my third son, there was a lot of events that led up to me being in the hospital. And one of them, which I think is really important to kind of just touch on was um, having people around you while you're in the birth process that maybe shouldn't be there. And in my instance, it was specifically my mother who I had asked for my previous two births not to be at my birth because I knew the energy that she brought because she had two babies die after she gave birth. And then I was an emergency C-section. And then my brother was premature, my oldest brother. So she had four live births. Two of them died. One of them was an emergency C-section and one of them was premature. So that was her only story around birth, which is right. a fearful state. Which having her at my birth, even though all the things that I know about birth, and I've already had two successful uh, water births, you know, at home in a birth center, it still affected my birthing process. And mm -hmm. I was not able to let go and relax. And it could also have been many of those um, subconscious things too, of my mom being there and the energy she was carrying and then fears about me not being able to birth. And there she is watching and wanting to see how it's done. And uh, so it's very important to, to consciously pick your appropriate birth team, whether it's in the hospital or at home and being strong enough to say, uh, I'm sorry, you're not allowed to be there at my birth and um, explaining why, you know, without making them feel bad. I know that's a little tangent that I think is like really important about hospital birth, home birth, and you know, your the people who you're choosing to be in your birth room. 
Yeah, I think that's where expressing wants, feelings, and needs as opposed to any kind of judgment, like, well, I get nervous around you could be, I'm really feeling safe with just these people. Yes. And if, if we need you, we'll, we'll let you know if I change my mind as opposed to making about something wrong with the person. And I think that's part two uh, of women who give, are giving up so much of their power is because they're afraid because they want to be liked and they want to be loved and they're afraid they're going to hurt someone's feelings if they don't allow or listen to, whether it's their mother, their partner, a good friend or a grandmother, you know, people who they love. They're afraid of hurting yes. them by speaking their truth. So it's part of the process of when you're pregnant is learning to step into your power of saying yes and no. And this is my wants, my needs, you know, my desires and practice that as much as you can through uh, your pregnancy of, of being in that power. Yes. Now, I know you work with dolphins to support pregnant mothers in the birthing process. Uh, I, I, you and I have talked about it, but I don't remember the specific details. So I'm, I'm curious, and I'm sure the listeners are, how do dolphins assist in the birthing process? And what have you seen regarding the connection between humans and dolphins in the birthing process? When I say birthing process, I mean when a woman's carrying the baby. I don't know. Do you give have women give birth in the water with the dolphins right there? Could you sort of fill us in on you know, how do the dolphins enhance the process and what aspects of it do they participate in? Yeah, so I call it the prenatal connection. So it's usually when a mom is pregnant is when we'll go and swim with the dolphins. And the dolphins are kind of like euphoric. Like when you're swimming with the dolphins, it's kind of like you're brought into an altered state of being. Nothing else in the world is going on except for that connection with the dolphins. And with that comes a sense of love, joy, um, healing, play, um, all the things that bring us happiness. And again, that kind of helps a mom surround herself in love and oxytocin. It's providing a nurturing environment for the baby. There's been lots of studies how dolphins are healing and, you know, there's work with autism with uh, dolphins and whatnot. But being out in nature, the, the dolphins and I have a really special connection and they're the ones who kind of like encouraged me to be with them when I was pregnant with Naya was my first interaction with them. And I really learned how to trust, love, and surrender. Those are usually the three words that come to me when I'm with the dolphins. And Every experience that a pregnant woman has had has been a positive experience with the dolphins, very different and unique. And all of them come out of the water in a state of bliss and are like altered. They feel like they're a new person. It's like they've just been programmed with <laughs> new DNA in a way, you know, like a new way of being. And yet it's just unexplainable. There's no words to put to it. There's no like science technically to put to it. Again, it's like one of those experience experiences. And I made a DVD that the dolphins kind of asked me to create, which is called Dolphin Doulas. And it's just 35 minutes of the dolphins in their natural environment and with their sounds and their play and their joy. And it's kind of just like a meditative DVD that they kind of said, this is for Pregnant women, every pregnant woman can now have the dolphins with them during their pregnancy, during their labor. They can have it on. And I've heard a lot of 
great feedback. And it's actually just on YouTube. It's You don't have to pay for it or anything. It's a totally free source that anyone who's connected with the dolphins um, can just go on there and watch it. And how it brings calmness and peace and relaxation and joy and trust. All aspects that we want to have as a woman when we're carrying a baby. So that's kind of where like the dolphin piece comes in. Um, relating like their pregnancy to ours, it, I, I haven't really done that because that wasn't what I felt was the point of the dolphin human connection or the dolphin in utero connection. So um, for me, the dolphins are really just kind of like spiritual teachers in a way. <laughs> and, and women are able who are wanting to and are connected to dolphins are able to go and have this experience and receive whatever message that the dolphins give them. So you just have to kind of be open uh, to receiving. And uh, even my mom, who's not the most open about uh, this kind of stuff, she went swimming with the dolphins. I took her and before you know it, she's bawling and just crying and she doesn't even know why. You know, and her heart is just blowing open and, and she can't put words to it yet. It's a, it's a time that she'll never forget in her life. And that's how a lot of the women experience this is it's a time that they'll never forget in their life where they felt like they've never felt before. Nothing else exists. And they're just in that moment of trust, love and surrender. You know, um, that's fantastic and beautiful. Now, Kim, when, there's a lot of research, and I, and I know from swimming with dolphins myself, because I used to live in the Florida Keys, and, and the Flipper Dolphin School was right next to the marina that I worked at as a marine mechanic. And I used to take Paul Jr. over there on our water ski boat, and we would jump off the boat and swim down and, and throw our, our uh, flippers into them, and they would throw them back. And, and, you know, you can really hear their voices under the water. Have you had any experiences of the dolphins coming up and using their sonar abilities to put energy into a mother? Or or do you think they're – have they part, participated in what you might call healing in that yes, way? Yes, very much so. I I actually film almost every encounter that I take pregnant women out with. And I have lots of videos on my YouTube channel. and also in the docu-series that I created of some women explaining even and sharing how um, the dolphins gave them guidance. And even from my personal experience, when I was pregnant with my second, when I was swimming out with the dolphins, first of all, the dolphins come within inches of you, like millimeters. It's like you're eye to eye with them. It's not like, right. oh, you're swimming and you see the fins of dolphins in in. Yeah like a hundred yards away. I mean, they are literally like, if you reached your finger out, you would be touching it, except they won't let you do that. And if you reach your finger out to touch them, they're going to swim away, <laughs> you know? So you yeah. have, they have that sense of trust and you're in that sense of connection and oneness with the dolphin or dolphins. I mean, sometimes there's 50 or a hundred all around you. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's not just like a small pod of dolphins. So um, when I was, I think I was 36 32 weeks pregnant when I moved to Hawaii to give birth to my daughter. And one of the interactions I had, I came to Hawaii knowing that uh, my daughter was sitting breech and which is feet up, no feet down, head up for people who don't yeah. know or butt down. And 
Mana was a breach. Baby. Yeah. And um, which is not the easiest way to give birth and not the most widely accepted as a normal way of giving birth. So I kind of was like, okay, well, I mean, that's what it is. I'm still going to Hawaii. I'm not going to let that stop me. And it was one of the second or third interactions I had with the wild dolphins where they kind of started swimming around me and, and making these like circling movements. And just, I didn't think about it. I just started following them and kind of playing with them and interacting with them. And I ended up doing kind of like these, I don't know how to describe it, but you kind of go backwards and you kind of just do these little flips in the water, like Uh back somersaults. And all of a sudden I started feeling the baby move. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is so interesting. I think the baby's turning. And on my next midwifery appointment, she felt the baby and the head was down. And I was like, wow, that's really (laughs) cool. You know how they, they were engaging me to participate in something that caused for my baby to turn. And as I put it all together, I'm like, of course. It, to me, it was like that was what they were trying to tell me is like, look, I can show you how to have a easier birth and it's not going to be as complicated or whatnot. Um, lots of other women go out with questions. I really encourage women to have a, like a question or something that they want to receive guidance on. And they'll take that question to the water and kind of let it go, not focus on it, and then just be present with it. And usually the integration is not just right after they're done with their experience in the water. It, you know, kind of, I guess, after a shamanic journey, it's not just like right afterwards, you're still in this phase, you know, that you're, it's not all pieced together or anything. You just are kind of in this wow moment, you know, of still in awe of like everything that's just happened. So it's kind of a similar experience on a little different of a level of this awe experience. And then as time progresses, you start seeing and feeling the effects and the answers and the pieces. And I always just believe the dolphins give you what you need to receive because there can be 20 people in the water with all the same dolphins and every single person is going to come back with their own experience. You know, they're all receiving, I kind of call it medicine, you know, like that's not nature's medicine. <laughs> so yeah, spiritual yeah, healing. spiritual healing. So yeah. What are your opinions on uh, vaginal birth after cesarean? Uh, it's for those that aren't familiar with the term VBAC, VBAC, vaginal birth after cesarean. There's there's a wide variety of opinions. Angie's had a C-section. She's 42, pregnant with our next one. Um, She's going to do a natural birth. She she feels that she needs to do it in the hospital just because she doesn't want to uh, risk complications. And uh, we, we're both interested in your opinion on that. Yeah. So a VBAC has kind of – a lot of doctors try to bring fear around a VBAC. And the main fear is of uterine rupture, which happens in 0.5% cases. Like like 0.5%, half of a percent of cases will have a uterine rupture with a vaginal birth after cesarean with when the surgical cut is done horizontally, like on the bikini line. With a vertical incision, which is not done often, you have a little higher risk of a uterine rupture. And then a lot of doctors say that, well, because you've had a cesarean, you need to always have a cesarean, which is totally untrue. There's no valid science to prove that a cesarean is safer after 
a cesarean, there's actually more uh, options for problems to happen if you have another cesarean. It's another huge surgery with a lot of anesthesia and different drugs and stress that is not as safe as a vaginal birth after cesarean. So I believe there's a lot of hype and a lot of fear around it that is not even based off of true science and experience and the true studies. And you can find those studies very easily. There's a website called ICANN. I think it's International Cesarean Awareness Network. I think that's it. It's I-C-A-N. And um, it's a great resource. There's also now people have come up with their own little like VBAC uh, programs that you can take and it gives you all the statistics. It gives you like how to prepare for them. But if you're going to have a vaginal birth after cesarean, again, there's a better chance of succeeding out of the hospital than in the hospital just because of the slippery slope of interventions that happens in the hospital and the feeling of feeling disempowered. Like in the hospital, you have to constantly fight for your right. You know, yes. and it's challenging because the only thing you want is to be safe, like, and have your child, you know, you want to feel like you're doing it in the best way possible. And you don't want to ever look down upon or feel guilty that maybe you did something wrong. And a lot of us have been brainwashed to believe that the safest way to do that is in the hospital. And in my opinion, I don't believe that the safest way or the way to have a successful feedback is easiest in the hospital or safest in the hospital. My personal opinion is to do it outside of the hospital. But again, a woman has to feel that, not me. It can't be me advising a woman that that's my opinion. That's just my personal right. opinion. A woman has to go deep within herself because, again, if she doesn't feel that that's true, it's not true for her. And if she attempts to have a VBAC outside of the hospital but not feeling 100% comfortable and safe, well, she's going to just end up right up in the hospital. So right. if she is going to do it in the hospital, there's different ways to prepare, especially if you've already had a cesarean, you know what the hospital experiences like and you have a lot to take from that and to learn from and know then how you can go into your next birth and how to prepare and how that you do have a right you're allowed to turn down any of the drugs you know you're allowed to tell them please not to talk to me please don't interrupt me please don't check me please keep the lights dim like the whole checklist of things that um you know, to do and to offer and to say and to have your partner or your doula or someone hold the space for you so the mom can stay in her own space and that you have the partner and the doula kind of being the middleman of talking to the healthcare provider so that the mom can be in her own space to do what she's supposed to do, which is just to give birth. She doesn't need to be fighting while she's giving birth. She doesn't need to be proving why she should be doing it or why it's better to do it her way or why she feels this way or why she feels that way. That's not the optimal environment for her to give birth. No, that's more combat. That's more cortisol. That's already informing the child. It's coming into an environment where it has to fight with the people that are supposed to be protecting it. And unfortunately, you know, like you, the medical system certainly has applications such most of the most effective application in my observation for the medical system is acute injuries such as car accidents, broken bones, things like that. But anything else, it's it's as much of a risk as it is a health. It is. Yeah. Um, so what? My next question is: When a baby is first born, what can you share about the issues of things like washing the baby, skin to skin contact, breastfeeding, co sleeping, 
and other issues that uh, mothers and parents should be aware of. Because once again, there's just all sorts of controversy on all these things within the traditional medical approaches. Yeah, well, I think it's become known that the first hour of birth is so sacred for the bonding of the mom and the baby. And I've noticed that hospitals have made a shift into, um, they call them like baby-friendly hospitals, where they really encourage that first hour of bonding where the baby goes directly from the vaginal canal to the mom's chest, delayed cord clamping, which allows all of the baby's blood to go into the baby instead of clamping it right away. And then the baby's missing out on its own blood. That's like blood that belongs to the baby. And it's also traumatic, you know, just all of a sudden that's creating a separation instantly from the womb. So energetically, you already have that too. Physically, you have it. And then you also have the physical disconnection of the baby receiving its own blood. So now putting the baby on the chest and, you know, in an unmedicated vaginal birth, a baby will find its way to the breast on its own. If you just put the baby on your belly, it will literally crawl itself up to the breast and start suckling on its own. And a lot of times this isn't even offered as an opportunity. But again, that's part of the imprint, the baby being able to go through all these stressors and make its way up to the breast and start suckling and receiving not only the nutrition, but all of the oxytocin and hormones that are released during the breastfeeding also. And both babies, when it's a natural unmedicated birth, both baby and mother are also flooded with this huge rush of hormones. Uh, specifically oxytocin, but adrenaline and all these things that are creating this sacred moment. In that moment, like right after a baby is born, a mom, if she is uninterrupted, like a train could like go through the room kind of in a way and a mom wouldn't even know, like because she's so in love and connected with this baby. But again, sometimes there's interventions of like, okay, this is how you breastfeed. Oh, let's put the baby on your boob like this. Oh, let's do that. And there's just that little disconnect of that critical hour of, of bonding. So yeah, it's like, it's like someone walking into your bedroom when you're having sex or the phone ringing or something. Yeah. And so, yeah. So, I mean, about bathing baby, honestly, I prefer not to bathe the babies. I believe that just let them come out and go straight into mommy. And the way that they smell and they touch and that vernix that they're covered with, that white cheesy stuff, yes. it's uh-huh. like yeah. so healing and nourishing. And actually, I know like my – who I studied midwifery from, she would take it and she would rub it on her own skin, <laughs> you know, and it's, yeah, it's supposed not? to like help. She said it's really good for your skin. But, I mean, it's it's all sacred. It's all perfect the way that it is. So why are we trying to – do something different. Why are we trying to remove the baby from the mom and go wash the baby off and clean the baby up and wrap the baby in a swaddle and then put it on the mom when, when like the skin to skin connection is like all of the receptors that we have on our skin. And if the first thing that it receives is mom's heartbeat, it's something very familiar to the baby. baby knows that like it's been living in you for nine months, you know, and when you put the baby right back on the chest and then the baby's skin is connected to your skin and then you have the heartbeat and it's very calming and relaxing and it's kind of just this like la-la love fest that you can't even describe to anyone else. Like, don't interrupt it. Let them be in la-la love. Like, who wouldn't want to be in la-la love? <laughs> yeah, you know, a lot of – almost everything that we're talking about that you've mentioned that you have to kind of deal with in the hospital and 
issues about breastfeeding and clamping and, and all of this. In my research, which won't be nearly as extensive as yours or even Angie's, I, I've done a fair bit of research into this over the years because I've had so many people with problems and questions on these issues. But what I can honestly say, and I hate to have to say this as a man, almost all these negative interventions come from men. Men that think they know what should happen. Men doctors who think they know, or men researchers who think they know that uh, infant formulas are better than breast milk and all this other crap. But all you got to do is look at the fact that we have still got testosterone-laden men riddling science, and science is still trying to outsmart Mother Nature. And I don't think you need to be a genius to see that's just not working very well. So one of the things that I think is coming out of this conversation is you want to learn something about birthing and how to do it the healthiest and most natural way. Study books written by intelligent midwives, women, holistic nurses, but be very careful about all these injunctions made by men who think they're smarter than nature because uh, it's really just kind of the hubris of scientific materialism, unfortunately. Yeah. So uh, the other big area of controversy is breastfeeding. Um, what are your feelings for mothers that have breast implants uh, for mothers that have been taught that breastfeeding isn't important and baby formulas are just fine? And are there challenges with bottle feeding that mothers should be aware of? Uh, and and then, of course, the issue of microwave ovens for putting, feeding, warming stuff for babies. I, I imagine you have some thoughts on that. So if you want to just give us sort of the Reader's Digest version on your thoughts there on those issues. I'd love to hear that. Yeah. So regarding implants, um, I personally had implants put in when I was 18. And I wanted them removed before I got pregnant with my first. And I never did. But I was able to successfully breastfeed for two children with them. And then I had them removed after my daughter. And the reason why I didn't get them removed in between is because I was either pregnant or breastfeeding or both at the same time. So right. I didn't really have that opportunity to do that. But um, so if women do have implants, don't think that you can't breastfeed because I have known thousands of women with implants who have successfully breastfed. So it's not an excuse. It doesn't mean that it's a hundred percent going to happen, but I also successfully breastfed after having my implants removed. And I also had like a lift done where they remove the entire nipple, the areola and replace it. And I waited two years and it's amazing how our bodies are. Nature is so incredible that it rehealed all of the milk ducts and I'm still breastfeeding my almost three year old and breastfeeding my uh, four month old. You know, so our body really is incredible. So people who often say that, oh, I can't breastfeed. I don't have enough milk. Uh, it's just not for me. It's really not the truth. The question is, is like, how, what are you doing? Because the more that the baby's on the breast, the more that the body is producing. It's a demand and um, what's it called? Supply and demand. Yeah. You know, and it's a direct correlation 
But living in our world that is such fast pace, breastfeeding in itself is its own job. Like you have to stop, you have to sit down, you have to relax, you have to allow your milk to come down, you have to keep the baby on there. It could be 15 minutes, it could be 30 minutes, it could be 45 minutes, you don't exactly know. Right. So Mm -hmm. a lot of women are not fully prepared on really that breastfeeding is a job in itself. It's a very rewarding job. It is beautiful. It is wonderful. It provides the perfect nutrition for your baby. Um, But if a woman's not prepared or if a woman has to go back to work earlier, woman wants the pump to give milk for the baby. And then they think supplementing some formula at night so the baby sleeps and it starts getting all convoluted and and then there's like it's very challenging all of a sudden breastfeeding which is this natural occurrence that we're made to do to provide the optimal nutrition for our babies becomes hard and we have lactation consultants and which is great we have all these people to help us the question is, is are we willing to slow our lives down are we willing to take the time and dedicate it to breastfeeding because when you talk to the women who really dedicated their life to breastfeeding, they'll say that maybe they had some challenges and some difficulties, but it was nothing that they couldn't make it through to exclusively breastfeed their child for the first however many months that they chose to do it. So I believe breastfeeding is very important, but it is a job. It is something to be prepared for. It is something to have help someone can help you with because breastfeeding shouldn't hurt it should be natural and it is very rewarding for both mom and baby. It's kind of like I love breastfeeding because it's my excuse to go lay in bed for 20 minutes and check out and just nurse and it's my time to be. And again, there's wonderful hormones that are being exchanged during that time. So um, my sense of breastfeeding is I'm 100% for breastfeeding. I believe that every woman can do it. Yes, there are hiccups sometimes, but there's also lots of support out there that you can help. The question is, is how much are you willing to work through this, through the challenges that breastfeeding might bring? Yeah, well, it's, you know, this goes all back to preparation and, you know, people aren't really living lives conducive to even having a family or even a relationship. I mean, look, uh, we were just having a conversation at the house. I think it was... Angie or Penny was noticing that they saw a couple sitting together and they weren't even looking at each other or talking to each other. They were both just sitting there texting back and forth for like half an hour or however long it was. But um, there's no exchange between them in relationship. So, you, you know, part of the, the part of the what I'm really trying to bring out of this interview for people is to realize that it's it's a, a life changing experience and it's a a real commitment. And the purpose of the interview with you is to help get people in a state of awareness of what does it really mean to bring a child into the world? What are the responsibilities of a parent? What are the challenges you're going to go through? Because we're, as you said, we're producing a huge, huge percent of very sick children right out of the gate. And these children are the future of the world. Now, on the other side of it, we're also getting a lot of amazing children, indigo children, crystal children, all these kind of genius kids coming out. So there's, you know, Mother Nature has ways of balancing even our silliness. Mm -hmm. But uh, so I'm grateful for everything you're sharing. You know, as we've alluded to a couple of times now, I did a very comprehensive interview with Dr. Sherry Tenpenny, who's probably one of the top experts in the world on vaccination. 
uh, in that I shared my challenges and Angie's and I's challenges in the hospital and all the crap we had to put up with there. Um, but I'm wondering if you could just give us sort of a, a just a little overview of what your personal feelings are about vaccination and how have you handled the issue? So I personally agree with everything <laughs> Dr. Tenpenny shared on her podcast. And I Great. chose not to vaccinate any of my children. And I have very healthy, vibrant children. Uh, um, three out of my four have had the chicken pox, which is tor- like a normal childhood disease. Nothing crazy. I had it. Yeah, I had it. I mean, I think almost everyone in our generation has had it because there was no vaccine. I don't think it came out until like the 90s or something like that. And it's not life-threatening. It helps with the immune system. You know, once you had it once, you don't get it again. I I just I I just I think that I totally just was in alignment with everything Dr. Tenpenny said and from the research that I've done she's obviously done a lot more um everything just kind of was like thank you for someone who is sharing this with the world because it's not an easy subject to talk about when your neighbors vaccinated and are pro-vaxxers and you're not vaccinating and the feelings that people have or when my children go to school and um, thank goodness in Hawaii, we still can use exemptions, uh, religious exemptions or whatnot, personal exemptions. Um, but like in California, where that's not okay now to go to any school, private or public, you need to have it's mandatory vaccines or a medical exemption, you know, and so it's now they're, they're trying to regulate, again, our rights as parents and by using a fear yeah. factor. And by yes. saying that we're going to cause our children harm and ill and death and from all these diseases. And it's so difficult for me to understand how so many people are able to just follow that and don't question it for themselves and aren't willing to go beyond what the so-called experts, all of those studies that are kind of funded by the pharmaceutical companies or whatnot are sharing compared to the information that Dr. Tenpenny has shared with us. So I'm extremely grateful for her. I hope and want to share her information with others. And that's just my personal belief, and I'll leave it at that. Yeah, well, I think uh, you really hit the nail on the head. People need to do their own research, and there's piles of good resources out there. And And the interview itself, I think, is probably one of the most comprehensive interviews in the world. I've listened to a variety of them, and I've never seen anybody really take the time with someone like Dr. Penny to get the history on it, get the issues, find out from a true expert on the topic who is not being paid by some corporation, who is not a scientist for hire, or as as I say, a a modern prostitute. Uh, But it is a critical decision that we each have to make. And I just wanted to hear your opinion. Uh, You know, we're we're in pretty long now, and I don't, I don't want to go too crazy, but I really do. My kind of the whole mission of living 4D is not uh, fast food education. So anybody that, you know, is really, interested and wants to learn this stuff is going to stick with us. But if you can kind of give us some sort of uh, brief answers and maybe some resources for the next questions, we're now at the stage of parenting the child. The child's been born now. We've gone through all the stages. Um, What kinds of challenges emerge between couples due to the stress of constantly having to focus on the new baby, lack of sleep, key decisions uh, to make for child safety, effective parenting the child? 
and are there suggestions that you can uh, share for making the transition smoothly and effectively? But we did talk about that quite a bit already. Is there anything you want to add to that? Yeah, no, I think that we kind of really hit some important key points there, just that it is a huge transition that both mom and father are new beings now. And not only do you have your individual relationship with one and like yourself, your partner, then your relationship with your partners, you know, is that relationship. But now you have a baby too. So that's another relationship, yeah. <laughs> let alone yes. a very dependent, um, that baby's dependent a hundred percent on you. And yes, there's lots of things that are going to come up in those first couple of years and you have to be willing and wanting to work through those. Otherwise it's so easy to just say, I can't do this. Yes. And, 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 and of course that happens all the time. And it's usually, it's usually the man that just gets up and walks out more so than the women in my observation, but it really just shows that a man's not ready to take responsibility for his own creation. And it's still a a little boy in a man's body who doesn't realize life's not always uh, uh, peaches and cream. You got to work through things. Yeah. So my next question relates to electromagnetic pollution, which today is a real issue with home home electronics, wireless systems, uh, phones, tablets, TVs, and a wide variety of devices that could already that can have an effect on the child, a negative effect. Um, Can you share any of your concerns or observations in regard uh, to? electromagnetic pollution and is there anything you did to kind of make the house and home environment a little safer or recommendations you could give new parents or expecting mothers? Yeah. So I am very aware and I have done um, quite a bit of research on EMFs. And I guess the one thing that I would want to share besides all of the correlations to the increase of our chronic diseases and stresses that are pretty available now is that what I I got actually from a Mercola article because I became interested in the mitochondria because the mitochondria is only passed down through the maternal side, not the paternal side. So the baby receives solely the mitochondria from the mother. Um, And even though it's a small percent of all of the DNA, it still is passed on strictly from the mother. And what I know of EMFs is it causes serious mitochondrial dysfunction due to free radical damage. So I got that from uh, one of Mercola's articles on EMFs. And that really stood out to me because I'm like, wow, it causes serious mitochondrial dysfunction. And that mitochondria is specifically what we're passing down to our, our babies is the mother's mitochondria. So for me, I'm very aware of EMFs and I, you know, I have timers set on my Wi-Fi and I have special crystals that I keep on and I put the EMF um, like uh, stickers and stuff on my phones. And I try to just be very aware of them, knowing that they are part of my everyday life, but also knowing that they are a danger. There's like in different countries where they've actually banned like wireless in um, hospitals where babies are being born in nurseries. They've banned them in childcare. They've um, in some places, I think it's in Israel that they have on the phone, like the dangers of um, EMFs. Like this is like a dangerous item that you're using. So it has become very aware that this is for real. This is causing um, disruption of our natural state of being of homeostasis basically. And it's 
part of. You know, there's so many different pieces. It's just not one thing. But all of these amazing yeah. advancements for the pros and the cons are part of our kind of dysfunction now and part of the chronic diseases that we're living in and why like ADHD has increased 819% since 1990. This is from that Mercola uh, article, you know, autism has increased 2,094% since 1990. This isn't small numbers, you know, bipolar disease in youth, 10,833% since 1990. And the list goes on, you know, from celiac, chronic fatigue, depression, diabetes, all of these are increasing at crazy rates. And it is from the combination of things. We're trying to pinpoint and say it's because of EMFs. It's because of childbirth. It's because of our food. It's because of our lack of movement. But it's not because of one of these. It is all of these things because we are all in this collective together. And it all has effects on our body, on our spirits, on our capacity to think, our ability to birth our children, and for our health, you know? Well, yes, it, it, it is. You know, when you, you know, I always, I often say to my students, if one mosquito bites you, it's not a problem, but if 500 bite you at once, you might get malaria. Yeah. So the, the mosquitoes are just an analogy. We got toxic food. We've got uh, toxic outgassing chemicals in buildings. We've got poisonous chemicals in our drinking water that's supposed to help us. And we've got vaccines that are full of things that damage us when we're supposed to be protecting us. And we got medical drugs that are more dangerous than the damn thing you're taking them for. We got EMF. I mean, the list is so long, but really part of the message I'm trying to share with you here is that we have to look at the things that we can through conscious choice be aware of and control. And the best book out there for those of you that aren't aware of it is the non tinfoil guide to EMFs by Nicholas Pinault, P-I-N-E-A-U-L-T. That's the non tinfoil guide to EMFs. I do have him scheduled for a podcast. He's somebody I've done social media work with before. He's a friend of mine and he has done extensive research into this. The book's very readable. It's got many graphs and diagrams. It's heavily backed by scientific research, and it will blow your mind, especially with the 5G phone system. So one of the things that is very important, in my opinion, for mothers with babies to be aware of is that if you are holding that baby near your body and you're talking on a live phone, you're, you're at risk of those EMFs passing right through the baby's body into the phone. And if you're going to be uh, mothering and you're doing things on your phone, it's best to have it on airplane mode or or you should try to schedule time to do your communications without uh, infants close to the phone. Um, that's just a brief summary. Uh, what are your thoughts on too much exposure or how much exposure do you think is ideal with iPads, iPhones, digital technology? with regard to children, effective degree, uh, brain development, social skills, and, and interaction with nature versus digital images of nature as a parent? Yeah, so I'm a Waldorf mom. <laughs> you know, I, I truly believe... We're Waldorf parents, yeah, too. Yeah, I, I, I truly believe um, in like, the work that Steiner has brought about. And I also did a course kind of that was like a homeschooling course that was called Anki. And that really was a wide awakening for me too. And 
gosh, I mean, first of all, nature is healing, you know, and nature is alive. And nature, there's this direct interaction that we don't even have to think about, you know, and the way during these formative years, I I remember I did lots of research when Caden was a baby and we kind of, he never saw a show or a TV or a computer or anything until he was like three. And that was pretty extreme. And it was a little bit easy to do because he was our first child. And I know it's like all the different images that are coming in and the way that they're programmed and how fast and quickly and the lights and and that the brain technically is not developed enough, what I know it as like the cortex to receive all of these images and they're coming so quickly and there's just so much stimulation and it kind of doesn't have a place to get placed. Like it doesn't kind of know where to go. Um, and I've heard that it also is kind of why maybe some children are having ADD or ADHD. Again, it's just yeah. another, another thing, another modern technology, which is great in many ways. But the question is when, when is it a good time and how much, like you're saying with my subsequent children, you know, they've been introduced a little bit earlier because I've had an older one. And each time it seems like they kind of get introduced a little bit earlier and a little bit earlier. And cause I don't like put my kids all in individual rooms and this or that, because I don't have a big enough yeah. house for seven kids <laughs> each have their own room. Well, yeah, you know? that's, that's just part of the nature of a family. Yeah. You know, so it's like, what are the children watching? How long are they watching it? Like, I don't believe that children need to be in front of the computer or a screen. A, the EMFs, you know, you can't turn them off when they're using it unless you've already downloaded a video, which is a really good idea. You can do it a lot on those streaming like Amazon Prime or Gaia TV. You can actually download the video first and then put it on airplane mode and then let your child watch it, which is a great option for um, those who are letting their children watch videos on their little own electronic devices. Um, but how long? It, every parent has to decide on their own. I see a direct correlation every single time my older children, my 10-year-old and my 7-year-old are on some sort of handheld electronic, it alters their personality. And yeah. even if they're on it for 15 minutes and it's an addiction, they don't want to get off, they're lost in it, and then they get mad at me, they're irritated. They're not in their bodies. Yes. Um, and I have to go send them out in nature, you know? And even I will, like, we're lucky. We live in Hawaii. We're surrounded by nature. And I would say 90% of the time, my children are outdoors. They're in the dirt. They're in the mud. They're in the rain. They're playing. Like, we don't have crazy amount of toys. Like, my daughter makes fairy houses out of sticks and tea tree leaves and rocks and coconuts and voila, you know? Like... That's yeah. her playground, you know, same natural. Yeah. And it's alive. So they're feeling it. They're feeling the energy of the rocks. My daughter talks to the plants. She talks to the trees. She talks to the grass. She says, when we're driving somewhere, mom, look at, can you believe how many different trees there are on the way from our house to town? You know, like those yes. are the conversations that come out. It's not about Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck and Power Rangers and who's fighting and who's this. You know, it's about real life. She's very connected. So I believe that it causes some disconnection between our natural being and our connection to nature and then what we're seeing on the screen and what, and then what's true, what's real for kids. Like, how do they, 
know what is what and what when they're under the age of seven. You know, it's very confusing in some ways, yet it's also just culturally accepted and it continues and it's okay because the children seem to be just fine. Um, so it's just something to look into for parents and to actually just witness their children because sometimes we're not even witnessing because we're so busy in our own world and our own technology and we're doing all the things we need to do. And it's kind of like a babysitter at times. And then I know if I'm trying to get things done on my screen and I'm a little bit different afterwards, like I'm a little more energized and wired and I'm like antsy and there was like a stress around it. And, um, and then that again is naturally passed on to my children. So just observing ourselves when we're in front of electronics and TVs and shows and entertainment, which I love my movies and things like that. And then also observing our children and how are, how is it affecting them directly right afterwards? And then making our yeah. choices along with all the research that has shown us what is happening. <laughs> I think one of the key things is just observing your child and, their behavior, their level of connection, their level of making eye connection with you. Uh, there's lots of research showing that any kind of screen, television, computer, phone, puts you into a state of hypnosis, which is the perfect state to put somebody in to brainwash yeah. them. And, and I won't go into the science behind that, but that's heavily, heavily going on. Um, we we notice, for example, even though my mom is in a Steiner school and, and we're, we're committed to minimal exposure, he was, we used to let him uh, watch his iPad and, you know, we only let him watch stuff that doesn't have a bunch of garbage in it, like, you know, how a dump truck works and blippy and things that are educational. But we did find that he was having a harder time getting to bed and he was kind of jacked up. And so we started, um, cutting back on that. And we definitely notice that he is less wound up if he, uh, if we cut back the exposure, but I was watching a, a documentary that interviewed one of the top people at uh, Google. I think one of the presidents or top uh, people at, at Google, and he was giving some stats, uh, some statistics on information. And he said, and I'm paraphrasing because it's been a, a year or so since I watched it, but he said, Today, research shows that we are exposed to more information in 24 hours than a human being was exposed to in their entire lifetime prior to the year 1900. Yeah, I remember I read that too. And our, our circuits have not evolved to handle, our neural circuits have not evolved to handle that much information um, there's a lot of spiritual stuff I can get into if I have time because Steiner has some really powerful comments on these issues. Uh, and he made some phenomenal uh, warnings. <laughs> you know, this guy died in like 1925, but some of the things he was saying between 1895 and 1925 about what was coming and what it would do to people have turned out to be exactly what he warned. And and I wish I had time to go into more because it's profound, the things he's shared. Um, my last question is that you've been through my Holistic Lifestyle Coach Level 3 training where I teach infant development. I'm wondering if you can share your observations and thoughts on important on the importance of creating a home environment that supports optimal infant development, which is the natural as you know, I'm saying this for the listeners, the natural movement, movement sequences a child goes through to activate 
and inherent neural circuits that integrate its body, its physical body, such as its muscles, its gland, its organs, its nervous system, and its brain. Um, you know, I've been into way too many homes that are just not at all uh, set up so that a child can really live on the floor. And I tell people all the time, you get on the floor and follow your child around. I'll give you 10 minutes before your knees are about to start swelling up. And you'll see why we have so many infant development disorders. And the number of people that I test, even world-class athletes that have serious infant development uh, integration disorders is very high. So what's your thoughts on that? Yeah. So, I mean, my thoughts, again, go back to nature and how, like, we've been given this beautiful, perfect, innate ability to, like, make these different milestones if we're uninterrupted. And they are extremely important with neurological connections. They're also connected with our emotional connections. And uh, every movement that a baby makes, it's learning about life and its external environment and is getting direct feedback from that. So having a very safe environment to allow a baby to explore and make these kind of milestones like in the beginning, they're just kind of arching their back, right? And if you lay it on your back and you try doing these exercises or these movements that babies are doing along the way, I mean, like you said, a lot of people actually can't do them um, because there's been some sort of disconnect during that development period. And that starts creating a dysfunctional body, which creates, a, like, allows us to be more prone for injuries, physical injuries yeah. is how I see it. And um, so like even, gosh, if you just tried to be in like a, a crawling position, like you said, or lift one, your right hand and your left knee, you know, like as babies crawl, you know, just all the different neural connections that have to happen in order for that movement to, to just to be able to happen is incredible. Yet if we're undisturbed, and able to do it as babies and learn it on their own, then you're creating healthy connections, which are going to create stronger connections as you get older, right? So if you're putting your baby in the swing all the time, and you go from the swing to the jolly jumper to the, uh, if you're holding your baby in a pouch to, and the baby's never receiving kind of that time to just be on the floor and to learn to roll over and learn its hands and just looking at its hands and seeing how they move and how the fingers move. If you just observe a baby, it is incredible how much learning and processing is going on in every little second of every little movement, you know? So the more we're taking away from that, it's just, to me, it's more you're creating an environment for that child to be hurt or wounded later in life. Yes. One of the things that that I want to share that I think is very important for people to be aware of. Uh, one is it's important to have mats on the ground. Most tribal societies built their camps near water and riverbanks and the shores of oceans where the ground is typically softer and kids and, and wherever there's water, there's vegetation. So uh, kids generally throughout antiqu antiquity developed in environments where the ground was conducive to be crawling around and not hard and nasty and sharp. And there's just tons and tons of kids' floor mats and toys and stuff that are toxic. Yeah. 
So Angie and I researched and, and we looked into and we made sure that we had mats for mana that were made of organic material yeah. um, because there's a lot of chemicals in foam. And the other thing is that the, the foam in pillows, a lot of people use pillows and bed mattresses that have cheap commercial foams in them. And one of the things that, that was identified as the, one of the primary causes of sudden infant death syndrome was the chemicals coming out of commercially manufactured mattresses and babies' beds were actually shutting down the child's uh, respiratory centers and causing, you know, what, what is SIDS, but sudden infant death syndrome. And, and in my research, I found all the way back in like 1953, Janet Travell, who wrote the Trigger Point Manual, Janet Travell, MD, uh, found that when when people wear uh, suits with foam shoulder pads, it disrupted something in their bodies and caused them to have a lot of trigger point development in the trapezius muscles, right where the, the foam pads were sitting. And due to my lifetime of work developing my subtle energy sensitivity and working as a shaman and doing healing work and developing my own healing medicines and working with plant spirits, I found probably after about the first year of my Tai Chi practice that I couldn't wear any of my standard kind of synthetic sports clothes anymore because I felt like I was being suffocated and it was disrupting the natural flow of Chi through my body. So I think it's very important for people to realize without me going into a comprehensive explanation that you want to get rid of all non-organic substances, whether it's pillows, bed sheets, uh, clothes, uh, floor mats, because the, there is a lot of chemicals in these things that are very disruptive to an infant and even to adults that are potentially toxic and disrupt the energy field of the child. And once you start disrupting the biochemistry of a the child, then you're screwing the whole system up because that's where the subtle energy systems interface with the physical systems is through the, the hormonal system. So those are just uh, some thoughts that I wanted to share in regard to that. Um, Kim, we have covered a lot. It's been a fantastic interview. I've learned things that I didn't even know, which is always exciting for me. It's one of the reasons I love doing podcasts, because I get to talk to the smartest people in these different areas. Um, where can our listeners find more about you, your coaching, your online courses of products? And I know we have some special offers coming up. Penny will announce those special offers for the listeners that want to do coaching uh, or engage some of the products that you've offered us uh, an opportunity for the listeners with. But uh, if people want to do some coaching with you or, or study more of your material, where should they go? All right. So I have a website. It's called PregnancyChildBirthOurFuture.com. And there you can see the retreats. You can see the birth retreats. You can also find the online program. And also, there is um, a great prenatal wellness program. It really kind of is encompasses a lot of the stuff that we just talked about. It's an online course, and it's provided by the company that I started, Fit for Birth, over 10 years ago after the birth of Caden, my oldest son. And uh, that I know that there's a promotional code for and a special like website to go to, to receive that, that I believe Penny will announce at the end of uh, this podcast. So those are the two places that uh, you can go to. Also, I have a YouTube channel that has lots of fun videos 
And I also have a Facebook. It's Kimberly Nelly. So yeah, there's a lot of places you can reach me at. <laughs> uh, well, how do they, what's your YouTube address? It's Kim Nelly. My name. Okay, youtube.com forward slash Kim Nelly. Yeah, I believe so. If you just put in YouTube Kim Nelly, it'll come up too. All right. Okay, great. I guess I should look. Well, yeah. I've, I've loved this. Uh, I know this is a long interview, but you know, these are very, very important issues and it takes time. Look, if you're not willing to listen to an interview about something this important, I can almost assure you, you don't have time to be an effective parent and you're going to have plenty of challenges because of it. For those of you that are health care professionals, check professionals, exercise professionals, anybody that works with guiding other human beings where children are involved, involved or where uh, people are talking about becoming parents, this is absolutely essential information. I would also encourage everybody to be very open-minded. Look into the resources. You know, uh, Carl Jung and David Bohm both had very interesting comments that almost perfectly paralleled each other, though I don't think they knew each other when it re- came to with regard to effective thinking. And David Bohm said, real thinking is hard. That's why most people just rearrange their prejudices. But when it comes to uh, being pregnant, to be being a parent, to creating safe and effective environments, it's time for some real critical thinking. And that requires looking honestly at both sides on any issue. Look at the pro-vaccination. Look at the anti-vaccination issues. Look at the research on both sides. Be conscious of who did the study, who funded the study, ask questions of people you trust, talk to midwives, uh, track down Kim Nelly, uh, talk to people like Angie Check that have spent a lot of time looking into this for the genuine interest of our own children and for other people's well-being. Or you could end up being like a lot of the medical doctors you can now see in the vaccination documentaries whose own children ended up with autism or dead and only then did they start questioning their medical training doing the research and uh, high is now the number of medical doctors with very very injured damaged or dead children who when they started doing their own research realized they'd been sold a lot of lies and a lot of manipulation and were heartbroken and often now stuck with uh, disabled children that they have to parent for the rest of their lives. So Kim, I'm very appreciative of your time. I love you. I respect you. And I hope that many people seek out your help for their own well-being and childhood development, uh, birthing and parenting and uh, just living fully. Yeah. Thank you so much, Paul. And I know all of this has really stemmed from your teachings and your practices. And thank you. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the root of everything that you share, just, you know, bringing it to pregnant women and uh, childbirth, you know, there's a little different component, but everything definitely you have been the pioneer in this field and really have guided my education and my passion. So thank you very much. Thank you very much. Well, I look forward to a chance to interview you sometime in the future. Keep up the good work. Keep us uh, posted on any of your new courses and developments, and I'll do my best to share them with everybody that I yeah, can. Yeah, and congratulations for your next little baby. I'm very I'm happy. very excited. I think, <laughs> I think I'll go home and paint a picture on Mama's tummy for the little one and have a nice, relaxing evening with Mama oh, tonight. That sounds beautiful. Enjoy.
All right, Kim, I'm going to stop the recording now. So thank you very much. Big hug. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Living 4D with Paul Check and today's guest, Kim Nelly. Follow Kim on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Kim Nelly. Visit her website, pregnancychildbirthourfuture.com to get 15% off the Primal Birth Childbirth Preparation Course using the code PaulCheck. She is also offering listeners a 10% discount off her Conscious Pregnancy Retreats using the code LIVING4D. And if you want to get fit for birth, you can also save $30 on Kim's prenatal wellness course at tiny.cc forward slash getfitforbirth. Use the code CHECK at checkout. Follow Paul on Instagram and Twitter at Living4DPodcast or on his YouTube podcast channel, youtube.com forward slash Living4D with Paul Check. You can watch more on Paul's blog at paulchecksblog.com and the Czech Institute's blog at checkinstitute.com forward slash blog.